three, two, one. Boom, and we're live. Hello, Gary. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming, man. Appreciate hey, it. My pleasure. The case against sugar. Yeah. This is, uh, for me, this is a, 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 I don't know how to put this any other way. I've, I've kind of consumed sugar most of my life until the last couple of years, and I slowly sort of tapered off in about, about a year ago, maybe last February or so. I just pretty much cut it all out, except for the occasional, you know, occasional dessert here or there. Infinitely better quality of life. I feel much better. I have more energy. And then I started really getting into it, and then I came across your work. And um, what I want to know is, first of all, how did you get involved in this? And how much resistance have you faced? <laughs> okay, this being the sugar case, or yes. this being the whole obesity diet, nutrition? We can get into all of it, but the sh sugar one, to me, is absolutely fascinating when you go down. I mean, um, have you seen that sugar movie? Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. probably in it, I think. I think you are. I think I'm one of the talking cereal boxes. Oh, okay, right. You know. Um, I, w I watched it with my kids. I, m I made my kids watch it, and it's, it's amazing when you know a six-year-old watches something like that, and then they go, "Why is sugar in everything?" <laughs> you know, you're. It's funny because my kids live with this all the time, right? So, I, I, we had just come back from spending the holidays with my. Uh, our grandmother, who you know, pumps them up with sugar while we're there, and there's nothing I could do with it. And then we get back, and I'm having them making my boys dinner. They're eight and eleven, and uh, my wife's out. And after the dinner, my eight-year-old says, "Are we getting dessert?" And my eleven-year-old goes, "Nick, it's Dad, man. Are you crazy?" <laughs> like, wake up, son. Um, anyway, I got into this. You know, I. Okay, I was a physics major in college. I was like hard science, and then I, I wasn't any good at it. I got a C minus in quantum physics, and my advisor suggested I find another career. So I went into journalism, started doing science writing in the early 80s because it was the only work I could get. And then my first book, I went to live at CERN, the big uh, particle accelerator lab outside of Geneva, and I was what we would call today embedded with the physicists. And I thought I was going to be following and making this great discovery, which is what the Nobel laureate who ran the experiment was predicting. And instead, I spent 10 months watching them figure out how they had screwed up. Okay, and it was a learning experience in how to do science, right? And I was obsessed with how hard it is to do good science. And I had a lot of the physicists in the world really didn't like this Nobel laureate, so they were happy to point out to me how he was screwing up and how he had screwed up in the past and how he had even screwed up the work that he won the Nobel Prize for. Um, after I came back, I thought that was uh, actually page six in the New York Post when my book came out. The headline was Egghead Squabble Over Nobel Prize. And this Nobel laureate was quoted calling me an asshole in the newspaper. And I'm 29 years old, and I assume my, my, you know, my career's over. What was he calling you an asshole over? Well, because I ended up writing an expose about what a bad scientist he was and about the <laughs> politics of science. You know, I thought I was... I went to Stockholm with this guy. Right. When he won the Nobel Prize, I mean, we got our tuxes fitted together. I was his guest at the Nobel dinner and the Nobel banquet and the party that follows, which is the most fun I've ever had in my life. Um, students of Stockholm throw a party for the laureates, and it's back then it was crazy. Um, anyway, so he was justifiably pissed off that I just wrote what I saw instead of what a great man he thought he was. And I thought my career was going to be over. Right, you're called an asshole in the papers when you're a 29-year-old journalist by a Nobel laureate. But instead, everybody I would interview in science would say, oh, you think that guy was bad. You should write about this guy. And I just started <laughs> covering different aspects. And it turns out 
you could get a long way in science if you're willing to sort of cut corners and, you know, it's not actually cheating. It's just you could discover a lot of stuff if you're not willing to do the rigorous, hard, critical, skeptical work to demonstrate that what you say you've discovered is wrong. Hmm. Okay? So I wrote a book about something called cold fusion, which was a great scientific fiasco of the 20th century, except for the stuff I'm writing about now. And some of my friends in the physics community said, if you're interested in bad science, the book was called Bad Science, they said you should look at the stuff in public health because it's terrible. And so I moved into public health, beginning with this idea that electromagnetic fields from power lines will cause brain cancer or leukemia. And everything I had learned about what you, how rigorous and meticulous and skeptical and thoughtful you had to do to get the right answer in physics, the public health people didn't think you had to do. They thought it was kind of a luxury because their science is harder. And it is kind of harder. You're dealing with like chronic diseases that to happen over decades and people and messy systems and you can't measure anything. And everything I had learned was that if you don't do this stuff, you get the wrong answer. So by the late 90s, I had stumbled into nutrition research. And this is maybe a longer story than you wanted. So no, go ahead. I was living here in Venice, California. I was freelancing for the journal Science. I was what's called a contributing correspondent and I needed a paycheck okay, to pay my rent. So I called my editor and I said, what do you got? What kind of story could I turn over quickly? And he said there was a diet study that was coming out in the New England Journal of Medicine in two weeks, and they wanted to do an article about it. And what I didn't know was that this diet study had been leaked to science in advance. And the person who had leaked it had given them a list of sources to talk to. And who leaks a diet study, right, to a journal? I mean, that, and this was a DASH diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension, which is the most, today, U.S. News & World Report says it's the healthiest diet in the world, based on, you know, like four studies that did, did not demonstrate anything. Um, the way you do those stories as a journalist is you, you interview the principal investigator and you ask him who to talk to, and he gives you a couple names to talk to who can talk about the study, even though it's published, and then you get three interviews, which is enough to justify a page in the magazine, and you get your paycheck. Um, so I interviewed the PI, and then I interviewed one of the people on the list of documents that had been leaked to science. And that was a former president of the American Heart Association, and she told me she couldn't talk about the study or she'd lose her funding. And I said, come on, man, this isn't Lysenko-era Soviet Union. People don't lose their funding for talking to a journalist about a diet study. And she refused to talk to me. I said, let's go off the record, complete confidentiality. If I'm going to miss a story that you're not telling me, that's bad. Couldn't get her to talk. And then I called one of the people that the PI told me to talk to, and he sounded exactly like Walter Matthau on the other side of the telephone. It was very weird. And Walter starts yelling at me that there's no controversy over salt and high blood pressure. And I'm going, but Walter, I'm not calling about salt and high blood pressure. I'm calling about this DASH diet coming out and he keeps going on. There's no controversy. There's no evidence that salt doesn't cause high blood pressure. So I get off the phone. I call up my editor. I say, I'm going to finish the story. But I had this former AHA president say she couldn't talk to me or she'd lose her funding. And then I had Walter Matthau yelling at me that um, there's no controversy over salt and high blood pressure. There must be a controversy over whether salt causes high blood pressure, right? 
So I'm going to turn this story in, pay my rent, and then I spent the next nine months doing an investigation for science. I interviewed, I think, 85 sources for one magazine article. Got paid for like six weeks. Pissed off my fiance at the time because she thought she's going to date someone. They should have a better sort of, you know, work efficiency ratio. Um, the conclusion was that the only way you would believe that salt causes high blood pressure from the studies that had been done to that point was if God told you so per personally. So you could ignore all the evidence and all the randomized controlled trials, even the observational evidence, and just... But that's what everyone had done. The, well, how did this start? Because I, I had heard that before as well. Yeah. Everybody's heard that before. Yeah. And I had read a long time ago that that was bullshit. Yeah. And that salt is actually an essential mineral and it's important for your body and it doesn't that's cause something. high blood pressure. And there's a host of other factors that should well, be considered. So it was, yeah, that's the thing. It was kind of intuitively, it was an interesting idea. It made biological sense. When you consume salt, you also have to take in water. That's why they feed you pretzels and you know, salty peanuts at bars because you want to take in liquids so that you can maintain the same sodium concentration in your blood because your cells, like the, the, you know, the chemical reactions that drive your cells are dependent on the sodium ratio in the cells. So if you take in more salt, you're going to drink more fluid and that you're going to have, you know, more fluid in your circulation. That's going to increase your blood pressure. And it does happen in a very short term. But the question is, is this a chronic cause of high blood pressure and hypertension? And once the researchers decided it was, and these guys are terrible scientists. I mean, I hate to say this, but in my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, in the epilogue, I point out, I say, you know, I never use the word scientist to describe any of these people doing research, except for a few specific examples, because they don't really understand what science is and how to do it. And they weren't, to their defense, they just were never taught how to be scientists. They were like physicians and nutritionists who, you know, had a sloppy scientific training and they thought it was easy and you get a hypothesis and you confirm the hypothesis. And when they didn't confirm it, they thought it must be true anyway. And then you find the data when people talk about cherry picking. That means you find the data that does sort of confirm and you ignore the rest. So anyway, that was it. I wrote this article. It was called The Political Science of Salt you know, won some awards. And while I was doing that, uh, this Walter Matthau character took credit not just for getting Americans to eat less salt, putting us on this low-salt diet. He took credit for getting us on the low-fat diet that we were all eating in the 90s. And yeah, I got off the phone with them, called my editor of science, and I said, when I'm done writing about salt, I'm going to write about fat. I have no idea what the story is, but this guy's clearly one of the five worst scientists I've ever interviewed in my life. And you know, everything I learned in my physics period was that bad scientists never get the right answer. So I spent a year doing an investigation for the journal Science on dietary fat. That paid for about two months. Um, and again, Seems to be a trend here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was bad. Um, no, it's good. I mean, it just... Well, it's good. You got to do that to yeah. get the right answer. That's And that's why so much journalism is so shallow is because if you're going to put in the time you get paid for, it's all you can do is a shallow job. Right. Nobody can afford to do that. I actually had corporate jobs that allowed me, you know, like writing speeches and press releases for IBM that, you know, I really hated doing, but that paid well. And like that was my corporate work so I could do the pro bono stuff I cared about. Anyway, this fat story was the same unless God told you personally. 
So I ended up doing this cover story for the New York Times Magazine called What If It's All Been a Big Flat Lie, which came out July 2002. It was probably the most, one of the top five most controversial articles ever ran. And the idea was I wanted to see what caused the obesity epidemic. That was what I pitched to the editor. But we had this idea that you get fat from eating dietary fat. That was actually the primary logic behind putting the country on low-fat diets. They thought it might help heart disease, but they hadn't been able to show it in trials. But they just assumed if we ate less fat, we'd lose weight because fat's denser calories. And there was always this competing hypothesis that had been buried and swept aside and ignored and you know, inhibited, which was that the problem is the carbohydrates, particularly sugar and refined grains. And so when I got this cover story, I got a big book advance. Finally, I could afford to do the book I wanted. It paid for four years of my life. The book took five. Again, <laughs> same financial issues. But, um, and I love it because people accused me of like, I was just going to write anything I could find for a paycheck. And I finally got a big paycheck. And so now one of the ideas there that emerged out of my research. So even when I wrote the 2002 piece, I thought that we got fat because we ate too much. You know, there's a line in that article, obesity, of course, is caused by consuming too many calories, and we can more calories than we consume. By the time I was done with this book, I thought that was one of the most inane scientific ideas that had ever come along. I mean, it's almost incomprehensible to me, even though I know exactly the history of the idea and where it came from and why we believed it. It's just crazy naive. So that's the one that I get the feedback on. Because I'm out there saying, so 99% of obesity researchers and nutritionists and all our public health policy is based fundamentally on this concept that we get fat because we eat too much or we're too sedentary. And what I was saying was not only is that naive and meaningless, it's a description, it's not an explanation. And we could go into that. Clearly, obesity is a hormonal metabolic defect. And in fact, the best scientists in the world prior to World War II, the best, far and away the best medical science was done in Germany and Austria and Europe. Like the U.S. was a backwater of medical science until post-war. Just it was a backwater of virtually all science. Um, and these guys had concluded that obesity had to be a metabolic hormonal defect. But the American doctors were saying, oh, man, the hormonal... Saying obesity is hormonal is an excuse for fat people to not eat in moderation and run marathons like a Celine people do. And what I did is I brought that hypothesis sort of, it, it vanished with the war, literally evaporated with the war. The German-Austrian medical community evaporated. We wanted nothing to do with these researchers. The Ivy League universities had policies in place to keep from being overrun by Jewish academicians from Europe. So in physics, we embraced them because we had bombs to build and a cold war to fight. But in medicine and public health, we wanted nothing to do with them. So this hypothesis evaporates. And post-war, you get this creation of basically obesity research created de novo by these like young doctors who have no scientific training, who are lean, who hate the Germans. So they're not going to quote the German literature, even if they read it. And nutritionists who do animal research and never even study obese people and you get this idea that it's an eating you know it's a calorie overconsumption problem by the 1960s the field is dominated by psychologists and psychiatrists who are studying ways to get obese people to just stop eating so damn much 
They didn't try to make them exercise back then. That was a kind of torture they would push later. So this was the thing I get feedback on. This is where I'm saying, you know, the entire medical, nutritional, obesity, diabetes dogma is based on just a bad idea, you know, a failed paradigm. And, you know, no, who's going to accept that coming from a journalist? So the answer is either, you know, I'm an idiot or I'm self-interested and I'm only making this up to get a paycheck or, you know, I'm just wrong. Do you feel vindicated or like when you see what's going on now where it's uh, pretty much common knowledge that sugar is terrible for you yeah. and that added sugar is a, a huge factor in diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and obesity and it's pretty much across the board now. Do you, yeah. do you feel vindicated? Well, do you feel like and here's the thing that the, the even though there are public health organizations that are now saying, you know, got to cut back on the sugar and putting limits on sugar consumption, the logic is still that it's just empty calories. That's still the, the logic by who though? The public health authorities, the researchers, the nutrition. Why did they? Why do they lag so far behind? Because this is fascinating to me. Because I, I understand that it, there must be a guy like you who does what's kind of ridiculous and spends yeah. nine months on six weeks worth of pay and it does that kind of shit because otherwise once an idea is clearly established and gets repeated like salt causes hypertension yeah I mean god damn it if you ask the average person on the street hey does salt cause high blood pressure oh yeah they, they just say it because it's like sort of this peripheral idea they hear it in the distance they don't research it they don't really look into it very far other than maybe they read something somewhere at one point in time and then they just decide it's dogma right and they repeat it. It's so it's incredibly difficult once an idea like that gets established in our society to to eradicate it. Right. But I mean, it, th this is the thing. It's sort of when you live in a community in an institution where everybody believes exactly what you do, and so the people you respect. I mean, think about it. The people you respect are the people who think like you do, who agree with you on the important points because you think, oh, they're smart. They get it just like I get it. So institutions sort of collect group think. It's just a natural emergent phenomenon from institutions. And now, if you look at the data, you're somebody like me, and you come along and you say, I'm, I don't really buy this idea. So that it's just empty calories. So I'm going to look at the data and see what it says. And now you try to convince your friends that they're wrong. And now you're the heretic. And you're the one who's saying, and you know, you're getting in arguments with people, and they, they you make people uncomfortable because you're trying to get them to change their minds about something they all believe. And they've all been, you know, they're successful. They're promoted. They're leaders in their field because they believed this. And now you're telling them it's that. And people do it. But the, the this just keeps going and going and going. And even to the point, I mean, just when my sugar book came out, there's a book uh, called The Secret Life of Fat written by a Ph.D., and it's, it's as though everything I've done in the past 15 years just was never done. Like somehow she managed to do an entire book on dietary fat where if anyone said to her, talk to Tobbs, even if he's wrong, his ideas are worth hearing because they're, they're provocative and interesting. I'm not so sure he's wrong. She decided not to do it. So it's sort of you have the – So what was her conclusion? Uh, effectively, it's all, you know, again, it all comes back effectively to energy balance. You could talk about the two, you know, overconsumption. Um, it's just, this is what dogmas do. They just, they, they, they 
reproduce themselves. They continue to grow. They're like tumors for that fact. And they, they, they basically fight off all challenges. They absorb around them, you know. So somebody starts saying it's something else. Eventually, ideally, everything changes. So we're, we're definitely winning the sugar battle. So in sugar, even though the, the official word is it's empty calories, we just have to consume less because they have this dogma that obesity is caused by consuming too many calories. So the way that a food influences your body mass is through its caloric content or how much of those calories you digest and absorb because if it's got fiber, you'll excrete some. And that's the, that's the wisdom. If a calorie is a calorie, then the worst you could say about sugar is that it's empty calories. It's got no vitamins, minerals, micronutrients attached, and so we consume too much of it. And the people say it's the low-hanging fruit. So it's not that it's uniquely toxic, because if it's uniquely toxic, if it actually causes disease, and we could talk about clearly what I'm saying it causes, then a calorie isn't a calorie. When you started doing this research and you started writing this book, The Case Against Sugar, when this was all unfolding in front of you, were you you shocked? I mean, is this something that you were were saying, how am I... A guy who got a C plus C in minus. physics, C minus, sorry, C minus. quantum to, physics. Try to pump you up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how how am I the guy who's figuring this out? How how is this? Okay, so I understood why, but it is weird because again, yeah. I, I you know sometimes I, I was in Washington on uh, my book tour and I had dinner with the former chief science medical uh, science medical officer of the American Diabetes Association. It's a very, you know, uh, influential, high-ranking, successful man. He's completely convinced that I'm wrong. And I said, but you believe this thing that obesity is caused by eating too much, and you have no idea why you believe it. So I can tell you exactly the history of that belief. Just like if we were talking about relativity, we could go back to Einstein and you would know about Einstein. And if, even if we were talking quantum physics, we'd go back to Heisenberg and Schrodinger and, you know, Bohr and, P, and you'd know about them. But this belief that you're fundamentally arguing is right, you don't understand where it comes from. And I can tell you that. And I'm going to give you the documents. I'm going to give you the papers where it outcompetes the hormonal metabolic idea. And I'm going to give you the competing hypothesis that you didn't even know existed until you and I talked. You started reading my stuff. And it has zero influence on how this guy thinks. He's just, he's so convinced he's right. So That's what, terrifying. That's is, terrifying when it, someone has that kind of influence over the American people. Well, and this is the thing. You want somebody to at least say, Jesus, right. you know, I never thought yeah. of that. Let me at least have him, let me read these and get back to you is what you want him to do. You want him, the problem, of course, is that if he agrees to this and then he agrees that you're correct, everything that he's been saying up until now has been bullshit and he's been misleading people. He has yeah, to apologize. Yeah, 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 he has yeah, to reason. Well, then, then once you do that, right. you don't, you lose your crazy, like ideally yeah. in science, you're, you know, the best scientists are the ones who say, you know, I was just wrong. Right. And then, but how we, rare are they? Rare. That's actually, crazy. when I was growing up, the estimate was 5% of the scientific community actually does good science, and the other 95% are sort of the chaff out of which you got to get the wheat. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a problem. I used to joke, imagine the American Heart Association writing the press release to say, like, we were wrong about putting everybody on a low-fat diet, and it was a mistake, and we're sorry, and we apologize, and maybe we killed some of your relatives Jesus prematurely. Christ. Maybe the reason you're fat and diabetic now is because of our advice, but we got it right now. They won't do it. You can't do it. That's the fucking Public crazy. health record, it's just they can't do it. It's a untenable. I mean, I'll say the same thing. If I'm wrong in my book, 
I used to have this argument with my uh, co-founder of this nutrition science initiative, this not-for-profit. And I'd say, you know what I'm If I'm wrong and the major arguments in this book, I mean, clearly I'm going to be wrong on some of the minor ones and, you know, chip away here and there are bad scholarship that I should have triple-checked. But if I'm wrong in the major arguments, I need a new line of work because I can't trust my judgment. And everything I do as an investigative journalist is dependent on me being able to trust my judgment. And if I'm wrong about this, like if I'm wrong about energy balance, i got to go sell shoes. You know, there's no yeah. way around it. But this is... I lost track. What were we saying? What was the question? <laughs> I talked too much. <laughs> well, I was asking you, first of all, what is it like to yeah. have this understanding that all of what's being told to the American people is wrong, and then you having this conversation oh, yeah. so with how this do, guy. How do I do it? Yeah. How do I get in this? So let me tell you why I was able to do it. And again, I was the first person who ever did it. It's just it's that simple. No one had ever done before what I'd done. It was the timing. First of all, I'm, I'm an obsessive researcher. As you know, the 145 people I interviewed for the fat story for one magazine article, I just keep asking questions and probing and probing until every... I also don't like writing, so it's a great research. It's a procrastination tool. But when I started this in 2002, when I got the money to do the book, the Internet had come along. And the Internet made it possible to find every single primary source going back to the 19th century. Like now you could almost download them. But back then I had researchers, young students in, in Boston, New York, L.A., whose only job was they'd get an email from me with 50 citations. And then they'd go to the library and have to find every all 50 and Xerox them and then ship them back to me. Sometimes entire books from like you know, a 1917 diabetes textbook that I couldn't find or I couldn't buy. And bookstores had put their, used bookstores had put their catalogs online. So you could find all the books and, you know, some 1947 obesity conference. The library that has it doesn't see any purpose for that anymore, so they basically give it to the local bookstore and you can buy it for seven bucks. So I was able to recreate the history of obesity research from conference proceedings where the only people doing research in the field would show up and they would present their findings and then they would do a proceedings of the findings and, and I could recreate all the thinking in the field and nobody had ever bothered to do it before. And it's kind of, if they were good scientists, they would have because they would have been obsessed with where their beliefs came from and they would have been questioning them and one of the things they would have done is gone back to do all this to see if some assumption they believe is true is really based on fact. But again, they didn't really know what science was. They weren't all that curious is one way to put it. That's so terrifying. It is. It's so terrifying when, you know, you, you think of what people, most people are busy. They work all day. Yeah. They have families. They have jobs. They have obligations. They don't have the time to do the research that you did about diet and come to these shocking conclusions themselves. It's not going to happen. Well, then that's so they, a, yeah. they rely on the people like this guy from the Diabetes Association that's supposed to be telling you the truth and looking at the truth, and he doesn't want to do it because it makes him look like an asshole. Well, and you also rely on. I mean, these are, so they read the review articles, right? And the reviewers, the editors of the journals, want to get influential review articles. So they ask influential people in the field to do the review articles, and those people are very busy, but they're going to do it, and they're going to basically, they became influential by believing the conventional wisdom and 
propagating the conventional wisdom. When you have committees do investigations, so every five years you get the dietary, the USDA puts together a committee to reassess the dietary guidelines that they give out. So the way that committees are formed, the USDA picks a very influential person, the most influential they get to be the head of the committee. And that's somebody who's believed the conventional wisdom has propagated their whole life. That's how they became influential. And that person picks people they respect to be on the committee. And, of course, the people they respect are the people who believe what they believe because they're the ones who seem smart. They're not the heretics. They're the believers. So you end up with a – you start out just with a natural quest. We want to know if the guidelines are correct. And through this completely natural human process, you end up – staffing the guide, creating a committee that's going to recapitulate the conventional wisdom, almost 100%. And it's just the way things happen. So you need people like me to come across every once in a while, assuming I'm right. It's better when the people like me are right than when they're wrong, but you're going to get both types. And we got to come along. We have to have the persistence, you know, to basically just keep doing what we do. I was lucky that I also had this podium, the New York Times Magazine editor's trusted me and liked my work. The science editors trusted me and thought I was really good. So I could get in influential publications. I didn't have to, you know, publish, do a blog and try to win right. people over. Um, but from their perspective, I mean, it's just, what do you do with someone like me? And I, I've argued, look, I've done this research. You haven't. I mean, another way to think about it, I won't I said, look, you know, we've got these obesity and diabetes epidemics worldwide. I mean, they should be horrifying to people, okay? Um, and fairly recent Well, in terms of human history. In terms of human history. So, one of the, again, one of the things I did in the case against sugar is I went back to find the very beginnings of the epidemic in the United States. Because if you got an epidemic, like if we had a Zika epidemic, Ebola, what do you do? You, go, right. you don't try to figure out what's causing Ebola by looking at the patients who are getting off the airplane in Houston are showing up in the hospital in New Jersey, you go back to Africa where it's densest and where it started and you could follow it to whatever animal got bit by whatever insect in whatever cave. And that's the natural process of understanding a, an epidemic. So I, you go back here and you go back to the, the 19th century and there are hospitals in the United States that, that you know, date to pre-1850 or 1864 in the case of Philadelphia Hospital in Pennsylvania. And that their records anyway go to, and you can ask the archivists to go back. They still have their case records from the 19th century, and you can have the archivists pull up the case records, and they will tell you how many cases of diabetes were diagnosed in the hospitals in you know any year from like in Mass General Hospital in Boston. The records start in 1824. Um, today, one in eleven American diabetic, okay? And there are some populations, like Native American populations, where one in two adults are diabetic. Jesus Christ. In Boston, a Mass General Hospital, the leading hospital in the country, and in, in Massachusetts in the 19th century, there were year after year after year were hit. They had zero cases of diabetes. And this was a, this is a terrible disease without insulin. It's not a pleasure with it, but before insulin was discovered, I mean, you go blind, kidney failure, gangrene, amputations. It's not a difficult diagnosis. Now, there are other reasons to explain the absence. I mean, you know, 
the only people who showed up in hospitals back in the 19th century were poor people. And poor people ate a lot less sugar than rich people. Wow. So, and rich people got their own private doctors, so they might not have shown up in the diabetes or in the medical records. So you could, you've got to always be skeptical of what you think you're learning because that's what science is. But, you know, the point I'm making is I went through the effort to do this one way or the other. And that gives me a certain advantage that they don't have. And if they're good scientists, regardless of what they believe, they'll say to themselves, geez, you know, I never thought of this. I never did that. I could think of ways Taubes is wrong, but maybe I should look into it. Maybe so where I... did it all start? So in the U.S., it starts again in the second half of the 18, 19th century. And it starts coincidental with an explosion in sugar consumption, not just in how much sugar we're consuming, but who's consuming it, which is what's fascinating and scary. So prior, go back, say, 200 years, you know, 1810, 1815, we were probably eating about five pounds of sugar per capita in the United States. So that's about... Uh, five the, pounds over a period of... Of a year. Per five person pounds a year. per year. So that's the equivalent of about the sugar, uh, one Coca-Cola, 12-ounce Coke's worth of sugar every six days. And it was the head That's of the house. That's hilarious. It's, it's, it's frightening because it's expensive back then. Right. Okay. And what would they add it to back then? Um, you know, they would bake Desserts. it. They would, well, they, dessert courses hadn't really been invented yet. Really? No. I mean, again, the wealthy would have dessert. So the wealthy, um, then the wealthy were the ones who would get diabetes and obesity and gout back then. Um, so sugar has this curve where it goes from being very rare and just sort of the, the luxury of royalty to, you know, the wealthy using it. And then finally, with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and uh, late 18th century and then refining processes are improved and sugar starts to get cheaper. And then during the Napoleonic Wars, like 1812, when France is cut off from from their sugar supply by the English blockades, Napoleon says, look, we got to figure out how to create our own sugar. And this clever Frenchman figures out how to get sugar from sugar beets. And the beet and sugar industry takes off around 1850. Um, and then with the beet sugar industry, you can grow sugar in the northern hemisphere in the temperate climates. And you could also grow sugar cane and it's only in tropical climates. So now sugar prices start to plummet. Meanwhile, you think about all the ways we consume sugar today. So candy, soft drinks, ice cream, chocolate, um, low-fat desserts, low-fat milk, low-fat yogurt. None of that existed until 1840. So 1840, you see the start of the candy industry, the start of the chocolate industry, the Lindt brothers in Switzerland figure out how to make chocolate bars. They're still, you can still buy Lindt chocolate today, and it's pretty good, actually. Um, ice cream industry starts in the 1840s. Soft drinks start in the 1870s with Dr. Pepper, then Coca-Cola, then PepsiCo. Um, Dr. Pepper was first? Yeah, Dr. Pepper was first. How weird. Yeah. yeah you no would have thought that's either. like an afterthought. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I didn't have the marketing brilliance right. of the you know, Coca-Cola people. Um, so sugar starts becoming like women are targeted as as because you know, it's now cheap enough. So the men get their alcohol and their cigarettes, and the women get sugar, and the kids get sugar. So the first time in history, suddenly, we're, we have all these industries created to basically target children as customers. Um, if you think about it, nobody's drinking cold drinks at home. 
Soft no refrigeration. Drinks, no refrigeration until the 1930s. And no vending machines until the 1930s. I love this because I'm a science guy, but in doing my books, you have to become a historian. And you just don't think about this stuff. So with the vending machines and the, the refrigerators, suddenly Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and these start targeting, you know, you start getting uh, six packs and cartons, cases of sodas and big bottles of soda that you could take home, put in your refrigerator and drink all day long. Couldn't do it before that. Couldn't get ice cubes easily before that. You couldn't even, you know, cool it down in the summer. Um, fruit juices come in in the 1930s. Uh, mm. California orange growers. Have, that's a big one, right? Because that's, that's one that people think is totally innocuous and actually healthy. Yeah, because it's got all that vitamin C. Which Just was, explain to people right now that if you're drinking a big-ass glass of orange juice, you might as well be drinking a Pepsi. Uh, effectively. That's what I believe. So those are the two you got these competing nutritional paradigms. One says if it's got vitamins and minerals in it, it's healthy. Oh, it's a Pepsi with vitamins and minerals. It's a Pepsi with vitamins and minerals. And so I take a vitamin pill and then drink a Pepsi, and it's the same goddamn thing. Effectively, yeah. That's so crazy. Effectively, yeah. We and always thought, like, it's fresh squeezed. Look, yeah. it's got pulp in it. Well, this is when, so the California orange growers formed Sunkiss. That was a consortium of California. They had all these extra oranges they couldn't sell. Uh, you know, the oranges are all coming season, you know, coming along in one season. So back then without refrigeration and cars, so you could keep fruits kind of alive for like a year by freezing them. You know, you had all these extra oranges you couldn't sell. So they said, let's get people to turn into orange juice and, uh, and we'll advertise that the vitamin C is good for them. The new nutrition of the 1920s and 1930s was all about vitamin deficiency diseases. And so scurvy is caused by the absence of vitamin C and beriberi by vitamin B. And that, that was the big news so that orange growers started pushing orange juice on us because of its vitamin C content. So now we're drinking fruit juices for breakfast every day. And then post-World War II, concentrates are created. That was actually a defense you know, World War II program to try and figure out how to create foods that soldiers could take into battle and get their vitamins from it. So that comes along. And then the last one is sugary cereals. So the cereal industry was created by um, Post and Kellogg, who were health nuts. They ran sanatoriums in Minnesota, right? And um, they knew their health nutritionists didn't want to put sugar in anything. They had some huge fights over this. Um, but 1948 Post releases sugar crisps, some, and it's, you know, 30% sugar by calories or something. It's the first sugar-coated cereal. And for the next decade, you can watch the cereal industries have these internal battles where the marketing people are saying, we need a sugar-sweetened cereal. We've got to compete. We're going to be run out of the business. And the health people are saying, no, no, sugar is bad for you. And in every case, the marketers won. By the 1960s, not only do you have like all these, these, some of these cereals were 50% sugar by calories, still are, but you've got all these iconic TV shows that were created just to sell sugar, every cereals too. I mean, Rocky and Bullwinkle, which was my favorite, this was heartbreaking. I mean, they, those guys were created to sell cereal to us. The com wait a minute, the comic? The comic, the TV show, Rocky and Bullwinkle. That was created? That was created as a vehicle to <gasps> market. I forget which cereal it was. Which company? But all of these things, you know, tone. I mean, there were the. So the cartoon was an afterthought. The cartoon was a method to sell. So oh, the the God. cereal industry would hire, you know, these brilliant public relations men who would create these characters and then 
get you know Hollywood to create animated TV shows with these characters, and then they would always sell the same sugar sweetened cereals. Wow! And so now we're just you know think what happened to kids. Okay, so the obese and diabetic people in the world are the ones who started. We all started as children, right? So you know, 1805, 1810, up to 1850, maybe they see sugar once a week. You know, they steal into the country store, and when Uncle Ed is turned the wrong way, they, like, stick their hand in the sugar barrel and lick their fingers and run out. By 1960, it's like orange juice, cereal, you know, sugary cereal, sugar on the sugary cereal for breakfast, you know, a Coke for a snack, a candy bar, the same kind of foods for lunch. I mean, I bet most Americans didn't go more than three hours without a sugar dose, whereas 150 years earlier, they'd have gone a week between doses. And as this happens, you see these explosions in obesity and diabetes that, you know, they're slow to build. And I think I could, that can be explained, too, by the fact that mothers pass this on to their kids when the kids are in the womb. Now, is there a difference, how much of a difference is there, if any, between um, diet, uh, dietary diabetes or di- diabetes as directly attributed to diet and genetic well, factors? Well, again, there are different, first of all, there are different types type of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, so type, type 1, 2. Yeah, type 1 is the acute form that hits mostly in childhood. Um, it has a strong genetic component. It's an autoimmune disease, but that doesn't mean it's not fundamentally caused by sugar. And by that, I mean if we didn't never got around to eating sugar, we wouldn't have type 1 diabetes. In the, really? You know, well, so it, people that think that type 1 diabetes, which is something that um, people I know have, yeah, and, well, it's just genetic, it's just something you were born with, that's not necessarily true? Well, they could be born with it. I mean, it could be, and it could be genetic, but it still has to be triggered, could be triggered by something in the environment. So, so if these people with type 1 diabetes didn't have a poor diet, didn't consume sugar, didn't eat the average American diet, it probably would never manifest itself? If their mothers, maybe even more importantly. In the womb? In the womb, yeah. Jesus so the, Christ. The third to last chapter of my book, the last, two of the last three chapters before the epilogue is call, are called the if-then problems. So let me lay out what I'm proposing here, the case against sugar. Here's a, so the, there's a crime. Think of it as a, you know, we're in a um, courtroom. A courtroom. And there's a crime that's committed. And the crime is, is epidemics of obesity and diabetes that happen whenever a population transitions from their traditional diet to a Western diet and lifestyle. So it doesn't matter what the population is. They could be the Inuit living on like caribou and, you know, seal meat. They could be Maasai living on the blood milk meat from the cattle they herd. They could be agrarian populations. They could be South Pacific Islanders living on coconuts and, you know, pigs. Um, Aborigines in Australia, Middle Eastern populations, African populations, European populations, it does not matter. Eventually, they transition. You see these epidemics of obesity and diabetes. That's the crime. So the argument I'm making is that sugar is always at the scene of the crime on a population-wide level. So there's a lot of things that happen when you transition to Western diets. For instance, a lot of populations eat more meat. But some populations, like the Inuit, they don't eat more meat because they're eating or the Native Americans of the, the, the Plains Indians. They don't eat more meat because they were living on meat to begin with. But they also get obesity and diabetes epidemics. I'm willing to rule out meat on that level. 
and other people did as well. You know, they become more sedentary when you're westernized. You get more labor-saving devices. You drive places instead of walking places, so maybe it's sedentary behavior. But you can find populations that are incredibly physically active. Um, cane cut it there uh, in the, the Natal region of South Africa in the 18th century. They used to import um, uh, in the Indians from India as indentured slave, uh, indentured uh, laborers, effectively slavery, but they call them indentured laborers, to work in the sugar plantations. And the cane cutters in the sugar plantations, that was, that's one of the most energy-intense jobs you can imagine. And one estimate was they burned 9,000 calories a day. Jesus. And yet these Natal Indians had among the highest rates of diabetes ever seen. And their ancestors, their, the population from which they were drawn in India had virtually no diabetes. And the primary difference in their diet was a sugar consumption. So you could play this game where you isolate out populations. And what you find, what I found, is there's no population where you get an obesity and diabetes epidemic where sugar, recent increases in sugar consumption haven't occurred. And by recent, it could be 20 years ago, it could be 50 years ago. So it's always at the scene of the crime. Now, type 2 diabetes, the common form that associates with excess weight, is a, um, uh, it's fundamentally a disorder of what's called insulin resistance. So type 1, you, your pancreas doesn't secrete enough insulin. Type 2, your body is resistant to the insulin that your pancreas secretes. So you got to pump, you got to secrete more and more to keep your blood sugar under control. And the idea is eventually your pancreas gets exhausted and it can't do it anymore. And then you have a deficit of insulin and it looks like you're, the results are pretty much similar to type 1. Um, so insulin resistance is also very closely associated to obesity, and we could discuss that as well. Um, you could look at these epidemics, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, dementia, basically as manifestations of insulin resistance happening all around the world in different ways and different people, but they're all related to insulin resistance and insulin, and then you ask yourself what causes the insulin resistance. So the best researchers in the world who study insulin resistance, the leading hypothesis is that it starts in the liver. And it starts in the liver with the conversion, with the accumulation of fats in liver cells. And in fact, we also have an epidemic of what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in this country right now. It used to be 20, 30 years ago if... Um, if you got fatty liver disease and you saw your doctor and you told him you didn't drink, they would just assume you're lying because they th clearly alcoholics got fatty liver disease, but suddenly people started showing up who swore they didn't drink, and then kids started showing up with fatty liver disease who clearly didn't drink alcohol. So we got this concept, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's basically indistinguishable from the alcoholic kind, and it's up the CDC estimates 40 million Americans have this, and if it progresses, it could progress to what's called NASH, which is non-alcoholic stereohepatitis, and um, eventually to the need for a liver transplant. So, sugar. Okay. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, I know. It's ugly. What are we talking about when we're talking about sugar? So sugar, cane sugar, beet sugar are technically sucrose. That's a molecule of glucose bonded to a molecule of fructose. Fructose makes it sweet. High fructose corn syrup is 45% glucose, 
55% fructose, same chemical constituents. They're not bonded together. I, I don't think that makes a damn bit of difference. Some people do. Um, the fructose is metabolized in your liver. So the glucose gets into your bloodstream just like any other glucose from any other carbohydrate. The fructose goes to your liver. And if your liver gets it in a high dose, like say from an apple juice or something, it has trouble dealing with that much fructose. It never evolved to see a glass of apple juice or a glass, you know, a can of Coke's worth of fructose be delivered over the course of five, ten minutes, probably even thirty minutes, so it converts it into fat. So we have a condition, insulin resistant, that's epidemic worldwide, that's you know, the leading research in the country think is caused by the accumulation of fat in liver cells. And we've got a substance, sugar, that's been exploded in use worldwide in which half of it is metabolized in the liver and is converted into fat in liver cells. So it's like it's at the scene of the crime in populations and it's at the scene of the crime in uh, the body. And it's got a mechanism. It's got the gun. Necessary. You know, you can match the bullets almost, but we don't have the smoking gun. That's where the research falls short. And so this is the case I'm making. And then if sugar causes insulin resistance, there are all kinds of downstream effects, including what mothers will do to their children if they are insulin resistant and have high blood sugar when they're pregnant. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, and that's why my argument is, you know, it's almost too much. It would be easier if I just said it's empty calories because, you know. What what pushback against your book and against your research have you experienced? Well, I mean, there are people who just object to my existence. Have you debated these people? Uh, I'm in the process of debating two of them um, online now, Cato in Cato Unbound, it's called. I wouldn't have, by the way, done this if... Um, I'm not a fan of debates in science because I don't think they settle things. I'm a fan of people getting together and saying, look, you believe this, I believe this. What experiment can we do to find out who's right? Right. Not who's the better rhetor you know, rhetor rhetorician. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, who's yeah. more charismatic? Who yeah. can get the point across yeah. more? You know, it's yeah. just that... that and the, the obesity society and the, uh, the, the nutrition societies once a year, they'll have their annual conference, they'll have a debate over this, and everybody, oh, yeah, I thought you did better. But nobody walks out of the debate saying, what experiment can we do to settle this? And I think it's, you know, again, we have these epidemics. They're tragic. The cost of obesity and diabetes in the U.S., direct cost of the medical system is estimated as a billion dollars a year. I mean, excuse me, a billion dollars a day. What? Slight direct cost to the healthcare system. $365 billion a year just said, because yeah. of obesity. And diabetes. Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, so that's $365 billion. It's, it is a direct cost. To the, it's a burden on the healthcare system, but it's a tremendous for the pharmaceutical industry, right? And the physicians and the right. hospitals that are getting that money. So they don't have quite as much motivation as might to stem this tide because they're profiting it from it well, also are they even aware of the causes of it if you're i mean if, if your work is so controversial and there's so many people out there that are dis disputing it or disputing this link between sugar and all these horrible diseases and they're calling it empty calories is this even something that in the medical community where they spend a ridiculously short amount of time in school learning yeah. about nutrition. And well, thank God for that, because if they learned more, they would learn the wrong thing, right? And then they'd be even more right. dogmatic. Right. You know? Good point. Now, yeah. well, these people, they don't really have the information. 
You know, you can go ahead and blow your nose, man. Right. Don't worry about it. You've been struggling with it for a while. You know. Gary's sick because he hasn't had enough sugar, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, so, exactly. It's a low-carb diet I ate. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it seems to me like they don't have the time. I mean, I don't have the time to do the research that you did. It, Very few people do. It, it really takes someone like you. It takes a maniac to go out there and, and, and stretch your finances and put yourself in a bad position. And, and really be obsessively chasing this down. Yeah, no, it's true. But again, that doesn't mean you're supposed to believe somebody like me. And again, you can't, you know, I'm a journalist. I right. used to think, how would I? You know, imagine some plumber came up to me one day and he said, you know, I just spent like the last 10 years of my life studying how to do journalism. And I've written this book and you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, and I'm yeah. like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll take the book, you know, um, and I can't wait to read it, and I'm going to go home, and I'm not probably even going to throw the book out, because the odds that that's a waste of time for me are enormous. When, when was the first, when did diabetes first sort of uh, emerge in, in medical records? Well, in medical records, you see it 2,000 years ago in, like, Hindu medical documents, Uh coincidentally with the beginning of the sugar industry in really? northern India. Yeah, I mean, just give or take 200 years. Holy shit. But, um, and even back then, they speculated that it was caused by sugar, although I think for the wrong reasons, because the diabetic urine, you're pissing out a lot of glucose, right? Because your body can't handle it. So it's sweet and it'll attract flies. And back then, even up until the 17th century, part of classic medical practice was for the physician to have his assistant taste the urine. He didn't, oh, he, didn't, he didn't have to do it himself. But the, and that could be, by the way, one reason why a lot of diabetes went undiagnosed. Because people wouldn't be, drink the piss? Because people wouldn't drink the piss, yeah. So, and you got to keep all this stuff in mind. I mean, this is... What a ridiculous way. Wow. It's all they had, you know? Yeah, it's, it's Science it. is determined by the technology available. That was one of the lessons when we get into this. Because all my books are about good science and bad science. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope I understand what I'm doing. Like I said, I... You know, if I don't, it's really going to be bad. It's embarrassing. You know, I wake up at 3, 4 in the morning and I'm thinking, why do I so obsessed about this calorie issue? Nobody else seems to care. But people do now. Don't, don't you feel They're, like that? No, we're making, well, but we live in a very small world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to understand. I mean, even with your, whatever, 20 million downloads a month and all your followers. It's, it's a lot more than that. Yeah. I mean, think about how many of those voted for the current president, for right. instance. I mean, it's just, it's a very... I'm glad to hear it's a lot more than well, that. Well, I am too, way, because I, I want to get this out, you know? Yeah. I mean, even if it's just for this one particular subject, which I think is probably the most important subject today, when in terms of health and, and wellness and just optimizing your existence, cutting out sugar and changing your diet, I think, is one of the most important factors in living a healthier, more productive life. And also mental clarity. Yeah. Well, now, let me ask you a question. When you cut out sugar, so you said you cut it out slowly. Yeah. What were you eating at the time? Because I, I gathered... Never, I never ate bad, yeah. but I ate pastas, and I ate bread. Okay. I, ate, I always supplemented with vitamins. I always worked out hard, and I was always lean because right. I worked out so much. So I never thought I had an issue with fat. Right. I never thought I had an issue with any of those things. But I would get that crash. I would yeah. get that late afternoon crash, and it was fucking insulin dump. Yeah, I or, used to say, I used to say, I don't take naps; they take me. <laughs> you know, like an hour after yeah. lunch, and I'd be interviewing some Nobel Prize winner, and I'd have to think of an excuse to get off because mm -hmm. I was falling asleep doing yeah. the interview. 
I mean, that doesn't happen to me anymore. No, it's fascinating. It's but see, that's, unbelievably fascinating. I would never have guessed. I would have yeah. thought you needed some sort of a stimulant to keep you going like that. Yeah. Although, in honesty, we're both drinking Bulletproof coffees right now. Yes. So we are getting some sort of a stimulant. We just, are, but I didn't I didn't have to have that. I, I did, mean, but that's the well, you're sick. book tour. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. When you cut out the, the grains, the bread, the pasta, that's still, that's glucose. So were you eating sugar? Were you drinking Gatorades? No, or? very rarely. Very yeah. rarely. I was yeah. still eating pretty clean. Like I would have dessert every now and then, but it wasn't more than a few times a week. Yeah. I wasn't eating candy bars during the day, but I was eating the occasional protein bar that was loaded with sugar that I didn't even think it was. Well, that's what, I thought it was eating healthy. <laughs> that's what gets me. So once we got into this diet, to this idea, so one of the things... And this was the second article I read. So is there evidence to support this idea we should be eating a low-fat diet? I mean, the second article I wrote. And I recreated the history of that, and it was fascinating because once these people got this idea that fat caused heart disease. So remember, science is determined by what you can measure. So the technology you have tells you what you can measure, and what you can measure is what you can ask questions about, and then that gives you the answers. And if you're a bad scientist, you forget that it's completely limited to the technology. So there's this old joke in science called the drunk in the streetlight problem. Do you ever hear about no. that? No. So a guy's walking down the street, and he comes upon a drunk who's crawling around on his knees under a streetlight. And he says to the guy, what are you doing? And the guy says, I'm looking for my keys. And the guy says, so is this where you lost them? And the drunk goes, I don't know where I lost them, but this is where the light is. <laughs> okay, so in science, it's like what you could measure is where the light is, and you got to remember that there's a universe out there that you can't see yet. Because, but most scientists, most scientists don't realize that they're just not good scientists. So in heart disease, the light was on cholesterol. That was at 1950s, 60s. That's what they could measure, and they got this idea that it's caused by dietary fat, and because of that. We just, you know, again, they tested and tested and this hypothesis and kept being failed in the test, but they didn't care because they thought it had to be true. And by the 1980s, we lock it in as a dogma. And now we have this idea that the healthy way to eat is a low-fat diet. And you start making products where you take the fat out of it. And once you take the fat out of something, it doesn't taste all that good. Like yogurt's a classic example. I mean, it is fat and some you know, modest amount of lactose. I don't even know if there's lactose in it. I should know this stuff because then people say, clearly you're not a nutritionist. So they candy bars. Instead of eating Snickers bars, which is a high-fat, high-sugar thing that we grew up on, you create Cliff's bars and Nature's Way bars and all these low-fat health food bars that you th we think are healthy because they're low in fat, they're loaded with carbs, and they fill them up with sugar. And then to this day, I'm wondering, like, should I just let, you know, we have a drawer with these health food bars and my wife, I'm not the only parent in the family, so my kids aren't tortured by my food beliefs. Um, would they be healthier if they just ate Snickers bars like we did when we were kids? And I don't know what the answer is. I literally, I could argue it either way. How could you argue it that they would be healthier if they had all that sugar? Well, they both have the sugar. What do you mean both? Like Lara the, the, bars versus... Yeah. You ever seen one of those Lara bars? 
I really love those. They taste good, but they're 19 fucking grams of sugar or something crazy, and it's yeah. only like the size of your thumb. Yeah, so the, the, basically, I don't know what the sugar content is. You could probably Google it while we're talking about, you know, regular size Snickers bar. It's probably more than 19 grams, but it's also got all that fat in it, which will mm -hmm. slow down the digestion of the sugar. So a Snickers bar arguably is better for you than some of these really super sugary, what we think, air quotes, are healthy well, snacks, like trail bars. And yeah, and the, the key word there is arguably. It Here we go. 20 be. grams of sugar. And what is that? A Snickers bar? Yeah. That's a lot. Okay. Jesus now, Christ. Yeah, but it's a bigger. It's going to be a big, way more. So what about the Lara It's going to weigh more? Well, it's uh, 44 grams. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, those things, Lara bars. So you find out what, what the fuck is in those bad boys. Because I had one. <laughs> I bought one once. This is before I had gone on my uh, Wait, crusade no against sugar. Wait, there's no added sugar, it says in the Lara what? bars. Wait a minute. But they're fruit and nut bars. So the question is how much sugar are in the fruit. Maybe you're looking at the, the maybe it's a different one. Which one are you looking at here? Yeah, that's it. What does it say here? How many grams? 20 yeah. grams. 20 grams. So it's the same as a Snickers. So why the fuck are they lying? No, no added sugar. Well, it, it could be because it comes from fruit. That's yeah, one of the still fucking sugar. Yeah. Your body doesn't know that. You're playing a goddamn game. Yes, you're playing a game. Exactly. That's, that's Wait, crazy. Wait, so how does this... Let's see. I'm just curious. How does Using this natural 20, fruits and nuts in their bars. The World Health Organization's recommended daily sugar intake for adults is 5% of daily caloric intake. For a normal weight adult eating 2,000 calories a day, that's 25 grams. So... Now, is that added sugar per day? I mean, when you're talking about lactose, yeah, when you're talking yeah. about fruits. Well, it's funny. I just, a friend just sent me an article today on a European Journal of Clinical Nutrition where they were looking at sugar content of children's diets in Europe. And they, at age one, they were 30% of their calories from sugar. Jesus Christ. But I was trying to make sense of it. I'm pretty sure that included lactose from milk. Which was right. a primary source. He said the primary source of the sugar was dairy products. It could also be from, you know, uh, artificial formulas. People never take milk. that into consideration, right? If you eat a piece yeah. of cheese, you're getting some sugar. Yeah. Although, again, cheese, once you process you it, process it into cheese, less. you lose the lactose. Um, but yeah, it's sort of, but the, even the lactose is metabolized differently than the fructose. So I would right. argue that we evolved to consume lactose at least until we were, you know, out of, in, in you know, weaning. Right. A few, three, four years old. Um, Do you drink milk? No. I yeah. actually gave up dairy, but for a different reason, not because I, uh, for me, it has unfortunate gastrointestinal side effects mm. that uh, my whole family could live without. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, uh, the, if you go into a low carb high fat diet which i think is a you know certainly those of us should be eating who are predisposed to get fat or diabetic um yeah cheese is a very, very valuable item of the diet and clearly like the french and the swiss and even the greeks eat enormous amounts of cheese and they live quite a long time there do you believe in raw milk have you att attempted to try that or raw I, cheese raw i don't milk think cheese? it's my gut feeling remember i'm a i'm a I focus obsessively on one subject, mm -hmm. and it's the carb content, and right. it's the sugars, and the refined grains, and the, what's the cause of obesity. I don't raw milk doesn't enter into that discussion. What anywhere. I meant about it is just from the gastrointestinal issues, because um, uh, a lot of people believe that raw milk with all the natural enzymes in it is easier for your body to process. Yeah, that's quite possible. But again, as a if you're 
gain weight easily, then I wouldn't be recommending liquid mm. carbs of any kind, including the lactose and milk. Got it. Right. So um, you look at the low-carb diets traditionally and historically, they never uh, allowed for milk. Even I mean, you might go for heavy cream or cream, you know, this sort of Atkins thing mm. or the bulletproof coffee thing. But Yeah, not, I know uh, a lot of people who are uh, on the ketogenic diet uh, that will actually drink heavy cream. Yeah. You know, my friend Kyle, who actually was one of the first people to turn me on to it, Kyle Kingsbury, he, uh, he, he carries around this little fucking pint of heavy cream, but he's a savage. Yeah, no, uh, my uh, former collaborator, Peter Atia, who's his... You know, internet handle at one point I think was ketogenic man, and he used to drink olive oil, Jesus. and cream, and uh, well, because you got to really up the fat content yeah. on those diets right. to get for a lot of people to get ketotic. Not everyone, but um, it's interesting. I thought I heard you were trying it. Was yeah, it? I did it. I'm yeah. on it. Yeah, and what, essentially. So, so tell me your diet. Well, um, a lot of avocados, a lot of coconut oil. Um, I'm, I might eat a little bit more protein than I'm supposed to, which unfortunately does convert back to yeah. uh, to sugar glucose, in your body, yeah. and glucose. But easy, much more easily processed, obviously, than yeah. high fructose corn syrup, right? Um, very, very little pastas or grains or breads or anything. It's it's a rare thing that I yeah. eat that stuff. Do you actually measure ketones? I've done it before, but I have a problem with those things. Those the, where you jab your finger. Yeah. It's too hard to, for me to get blood out. I, I uh, do a lot of kettlebell stuff, and right, so I have right, calluses right. on my fingers and my hands. So I have to actually go into the side of my hand yeah, yeah, to get yeah. the blood. I have to go like above the fingerprints yeah. into the uh, upper skin area and squeeze out the blood. It's fucking annoying. So I know when I'm in it. And yeah. also, I take um, ketogenic supplements. I'll take like uh, exogenous ketones. Like, there's a stuff called Kegenics. Is there anything that tastes decent? Yeah, Kegenics tastes really good. Oh. It tastes good. It's a good drink. It's uh, it's made by Dom D'Agostino. Do you yeah, know who he sure, is? I know yeah, Dom, so yeah. he's one of the premier research scientists that's devoted to a ketogenic diet. And uh, I heard about him from Tim Ferriss's podcast, and I've read some of his work online, yeah. listened to some of his lectures, and you know, and talks, and. Um, I find it, uh, first of all, as, as far as like appetite suppressing, it's fantastic. Yeah. Once your body starts burning fat, you don't get that weird hunger thing. Well, to, that's, yeah, that's the thing because yeah. you're not, uh, you're just mobilizing your fat and burning it. It's all coming out. It's not being, your yeah. body isn't trying to hold on to it. You're not freaking out. That's you're the thing. It's like, you're, like when I was on a heavy carb diet, because I would, I'd love pasta. God, I love like lasagna and linguine with clams and it's just like i just love it it's fantastic and occasionally i'll indulge as a rare treat now but when i was eating it all the time i would have this two or three hour post eating thing where that stuff would be gone it would all be digested and then i'd be fucking starving in the next hour well, or so. remember the old joke about you know chinese food, right right like yeah. two hours later you're starving yeah, I mean that's really what it yeah. is. Your body starts craving those carbohydrates, the simple carbs. Well, that's the thing because you're 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 burning the sugar, so you, the carbs are converted to glucose. You're burning the glucose, you're secreting insulin, and the insulin's telling your fat to hold on to fat. This yeah. is my theory anyway, and it's uh, it's backed up by the evidence. So, as the blood sugar starts coming down, your fat tissue is supposed to release the fat and allow it to come out and be oxidized by the same cells and the mitochondria in your cells in this famous Krebs cycle that we're all supposed to learn in like 11th grade biology and can never remember. The Krebs cycle is just as happy to burn fat as carbs. But if the insulin's high, it's telling your mitochondria to burn carbs. 
not fat. And it's telling the fat cells to hold on to fat. And now you've just got a dearth of fuel. It's actually telling your lean tissue to hold on to protein. So now your blood sugar is coming down, but the insulin's still elevated. And there's no fuels replacing the blood sugar. And now you bonk. You bonk, or you start to panic, or you, you know, and this is why, you know, I mean, once we instituted this low fat thing, and people said, well, Americans get fat because they snack all the time. They're constantly grazing. Well, they're constantly grazing because their cells are running out of fuel. No matter how much they're eating for breakfast of their low fat stuff, if their insulin is elevated, their cells are going to want to burn carbs. And this is one of the observations you found in the literature in the 1830s. There was a a Hungarian endocrinologist working at Northwestern University who talked about some of his obese pay. He said he had a, a patient who was an obese laundress who used to eat laundry starch. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. But that's what What the it, fuck is laundry starch? It's starch. It's a carbohydrate, man. I, didn't, oh. I had no idea. But the point is, if your insulin is elevated, carbohydrates are your fuel. It's signaling your cells to burn glucose and not to burn fat and not to burn protein. So carbs are your fuel. They're your, that's what you need. So when you start to get hungry, you crave that because that's the only thing your cells are gonna burn. Right. So then if you, you know, do like you try a ketogenic diet or low carb, high fat diet, whatever you wanna call it, and you get rid of the carbs and you get enough fat, your insulin comes down, then you get in this natural thing where you eat you store some of the fat, you're burning fat. When you're done burning the fat in your bloodstream, the fat comes out of your cells. There's this nice cycle that's supposed to happen. You always have enough fuel available that, you know, you're not hungry. And that's one of the common phenomena is the idea that suddenly I have breakfast. The next thing I know, it's 2, 3 in the afternoon, and I'm thinking maybe I should eat lunch just because I should eat lunch. Not because I'm hungry, not because I'm right. starving, you know, and then you eat lunch, you don't fall asleep afterwards. Because your body has a fuel supply. Because your body has a constant fuel supply. Your cells are being fueled whether you're eating or not. You've got enough fat in your body to live for like a month even if you're relatively lean. Now, I should point out that some high-level athletes are ha having an issue with this. Some people that are used to burning off massive amounts of calories during the day, yeah. like mixed martial artists and things along those lines, some of them adapt to it fine right. and are having a great time with it and find it easier to make weight and easier to train. But other ones say that they have just a lack of that extra gear in training. Now, I don't know if they're doing it fully disciplined, like if they're monitoring their ketones, well, if they're really sure about their diet, they've got it 75, 25. Yeah. Some of the earliest studies ever done on this was by a guy named Steve Finney, who's co-author of two books, uh, Art and Science of Low-Carb Living and the Art and Science of Low-Carb Performance. And Steve, back in the late 70s, early 80s, he was at, I think it's Vermont, um, where there was a team of people studying, doing some interesting diet experiments. And he put professional bike racers on ketogenic diets and measured their performance versus their sort of traditional high-carb diets. And he keto-adapted them, so they were fully adapted to burning fat for fuel. And from his studies, basically, he said they, you know, they're, they're more efficient until they have to push that last sort of 5% out, like up a mountain or mm. a marathon or getting to Heartbreak Hill in the Boston Marathon, and then they lose that extra push. See, that's what and, makes sense, because that extra push is all what mixed martial arts is about. Yeah. That extra push is all about, I mean, in MMA, it's all about exploding when you're tired. It's all about being able to 
manage your endurance over the course of five minutes, but figure out these sprint times and being able to squeeze the most out of those to break your opponent. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times it's based on how much you have in the tank. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And I mean, a lot of it, you should still, you can still, even the, it's funny, carb loading, when it was first uh, sort of perfected, was uh, developed in Scandinavia by, um, in back in the 50s, I think it was, by uh, the, the coaches of cross-country skiers, which is an incredibly, like, physically... Uh, burdensome brutal brutal so and they trained all year long on low-carb diets so they would train on low-carb diets and the idea was they would eat the plate of pasta you know the day before the race and they would maximize their glycogen stores and their liver and their cells and then when they needed it it was there and has that been proven efficient i I mean it was a great way for them but then it was but again the point is they were eating the low-carb diets the rest of the year and then once marathoners started doing everyone thought of marathon and should eat carbs the night before a marathon we should all eat carbs, and then this idea that carbs are heart healthy came in, and they just took over the world. Mm. So, but my area of expertise is by no means okay. like high performance athletes. Right. There are people out there who could talk to you for, you know, and I'll recommend some when we get off. Um, but you know, it's interesting because even when you read the debates about this stuff, what the high performance athletes I see this in like Outside Magazine and Runners World and stuff. So. There's this fundamental argument that, look, we don't get fat because we eat too much. We get fat because the carbohydrates in our diet causes hormonal metabolic dysregulation that makes us store calories of fat in our fat cells. And that implies that the healthiest diet for those of us who get fat are diets absent, you know, easily digestible carbs and sugars. But if athletes, very high-performing athletes, eat those diets and don't perform better than before, it's not a good diet, and therefore all the rest of it is wrong. And that's just crazy. Hmm. You know, it's sort of what Lance Armstrong needs to win the Tour de France, whatever it is, doesn't tell me a hell of a lot about why, you know, Shirley McClintock weighs 300 pounds and can't lose that weight unless she gives up carbohydrates. You know, and all of that gets confounded in these discussions. And one of the things I'm constantly doing when I talk about this stuff is saying, you got to keep your eye on the question. Because we were all given different answers to different questions. So what's the best diet for winning the Tour de France or MMA fight? Um, probably got a lot of the same themes that I'm talking about. But even then, mm. funny when sugar came in, beginning around the 1890s, um, and it was uh, cheap and easily available, and beet sugar was available in Germany. Even the German army started testing sugar as a performance enhancer and actually doing sort of trials where they would send troops out with or without sugar for, you know, 30-day marches, and then they would see when they came back which ones had more energy and the ones who ate more sugar had more energy. And they, So mountain climbers started using it. Um, crew coaches started testing it on the crew, like rowing back then was among the most popular sports in the world. And so they would give their rowers uh, sugar and see if they performed better, which they inevitably did. It was, it's a great performance enhancing drug. It's a psychoactive drug. It kills pain. It's, it is, you know, the joke, it's quick energy. Sugar kills pain? Yeah, that's why we give it to kids. You know, if you, your baby, was he circumcised? I have girls. Then okay, not an issue. Yeah. Boys circumcise them, give them a little bit of sugar. Jesus Christ, I've it, never heard of that though. But oh sugar yeah, no, kills very, pain. Yeah, it's a distraction. It's a painkiller. I mean, 
it's uh, wonderful psychoactive properties. Uh, no short-term side effects. You know, I mean, you talking about must be talking about a very minor. Well, if you also if you start with populations that never consume sugar, so oh, babies okay. never consume it before, you give them a little sugar like on day three, you can circumcise them and they're, and they're just tripping. They're fine. Hey, cool, take it off. I don't need to live with that. <laughs> what, what what am I going to use that for? I mean, when you know you're three days old, you got no imagination. Wow. <laughs> we could talk about um the uh, yeah. So anyway, that's the thing. I, it's that it could be a performance-enhancing drug that would enhance the performance of athletes at the highest level doesn't mean it doesn't have long-term chronic effects, right. just like any other performance-enhancing drug. So there's a big difference between people that are, like, say, climbing K2 that need something yeah. to push them forward versus the average person who likes to play racquetball and works a day job and you know and that kind of a diet well, yeah and think about i mean the athletic trainers who have been telling you i mean the, the guys you work out with your whole you know the lean muscular guys who never had an ounce of fat in their lives mm -hmm. and they're saying we should all eat carbs or we should all eat sugar because i look how well i process it mm. and my argument is like if you think your body works the same way as your cousin who weighs 300 pounds and the only difference is you exercise more like, that's a serious delusion. And, you know, we're different people. I don't know. you have siblings? Yes. Are you all built alike? Uh, I have a sister. I, and okay. She's, uh, yeah. I mean, she's <laughs> I lean. She's, I yeah. mean, she, she works out a little bit. Not, not like I do. But, you know, we have good genes in, in yeah. that regard. But, I mean, when I was a kid, my older brother, uh, mathematician, brilliant guy, but he was always... Taller, leaner, like you could see the veins on his arms and the ripples on his stomach. Just when he was Seven years old. By a lot, by a, it wasn't genetic because I clearly had the same genes in right. a different body type. But they vary. Right? Yeah. So when he got to college, he was a rower. He couldn't get over 195 no matter how much he ate. And he used to say, I never forget this. I never get stuffed. I just get bored of eating after a few hours. <laughs> and I was shorter, thicker. You know, I put on weight relatively easily. By the time I was in high school, I weighed 195. When I was playing, you know, Division II college football, I could get up to 237. Wow. And no matter how much I ate, I could not get above 237. And I was three inches shorter than he was. We just had different body types. We, I built muscle easier than he did, and I put on fat easier than he did. And it had nothing to do with how much. We both ate right. as much as we could. In fact, dinners in our family lasted like 18 minutes because it was, you know, my mother Wolves. put down like, you know, enough for four or eight people. And if I didn't eat it fast, my brother, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Start at seven over at 718. Right. No matter what she served. Um, when you're looking at all this data and you're putting together this book and you realize that you're going to drop this mind blower on people that we're, we've been essentially misled by almost every established organization when it comes to health yeah. and diet how are you feeling when you're about to release this are you hesitant is this like one thing where you're like jesus christ am i just do, i mean did you have this like incredible desire to like double check triple check quadruple check uh, no but i should have <laughs> <laughs> the um okay so the first time this happened so the articles in science for whatever reason didn't create all that much controversy. I mean, they won awards and reporting awards and 
you know, they were in books about the best science writing, but nobody really cared. I mean, there was enough controversy about whether this low-fat diet, for instance, was the right thing. Then I do this New York Times Magazine article where, you know, the idea was to go out and find out that this was pitched in 2001 and the, our awareness of the obesity epidemic was only about three years old. And you could pinpoint it in time from between the late 1970s to the early 1990s, two surveys that were done. And during those two surveys, the prevalence of obesity almost doubled the United States, the percentage of Americans. So you'd ask the question, what caused it? And I had two hypotheses. One was we had shifted. In the 1960s, the conventional wisdom was that um, carbohydrates are uniquely fattening. One our line I quote in two of my books was the first sentence of a British Journal of Nutrition article in 1963, written by one of the two leading British dietitians, was every woman knows carbohydrates are fattening. And every woman knew this. Car, you know, bread, pasta, potatoes, rice, beer, sweets, you know, they, they'd go right to your hips. That was a line. And then we turned them into heart-healthy diet foods by the 1980s. And that Jesus. happened between, was institutionalized between 1977 and 1984. And by 84, like the New York Times health reporters writing her best-selling diet, you know, health cooking book called the Good Food Book. And she's saying, yeah, we used to think carbs are fattening, but now we should eat pasta and bread all the time. So that was one hypothesis. The other was high fructose corn syrup, which came in in 1977 and had sort of replaced sugar and Pepsi and Coke by 1984. Anyway, as I'm doing that piece, I realized I, find, I stumbled upon five studies of the Atkins diet. So the Atkins diet is the what scientists call the anomalous observation. So what you're always looking for in science is the anomalous observation. That's the thing that doesn't fit with any of your beliefs. You know, you've got a theory that says this, and then you find that. And, th and now you've got a way to come up with a better theory because you've got something else you have to explain that your present theory doesn't. And it's the anomalous observations that move science forward. It's the thing that just doesn't fit with your belief. So here's these diet trials where you've got the Atkins diet, high in fat, high in saturated fat, so it should give you heart disease. You know, double quarter pounded with cheese, no bun, lobster, Newburg, you know eggs, bacon, sausage, and you're allowed to eat as much as you want, okay? So it's not a calorie-restricted diet. It's ad libitum. As long as you don't eat carbs, you could have eight eggs for breakfast and a rash for bacon and, you know, whole chicken for lunch. So the other theory, one theory is that fat is going to cause heart disease, and the other theory is that the eat as much as you want. You tell a fat person to eat as much as you want, they're going to get fatter, right, because we think they got fat to begin with because they ate too much. And then you compare those people to people you put on an American Heart Association low-fat diet and you tell them to calorie restrict. Am I repeating myself? No, no, go ahead. Little. No, go ahead. You know, the ice cream scoop size mm -hmm. of tuna salad on the yeah. lettuce patty thing that we all went through at some point in our life. Maybe not you if you were naturally lean. Anyway, in all five of these trials, and they'd been done but not published yet, and they'd been presented at conferences, the people on the Atkins diet not only lost more weight than the ones on the calorie-restricted American Heart Association low-fat diet that a whole American people were supposed to be eating. So that refutes the eating too much hypothesis because these guys on the Atkins diet can eat as much as they want. But their heart disease risk factors are better. 
okay, so they're supposed to die of heart disease. You know, you eat the bacon, it clogs your arteries, you fall over dead. But they were healthier. So it refutes the heart disease thing too. So there's the anomalous observation. How do you explain that? If dietary fat causes heart disease and eating too much causes obesity. So I write this article. I lead it with this young Harvard endocrinologist, pediatrician who's feeding low-carb diets to his patients at Boston Children's Hospital. He's like politically acceptable. He's sincere. He's at Harvard. I want to ease people into it. And then I talk about the Atkins thing down below and how Atkins had gotten pilloried back in the late 60s, early 70s for telling people they could eat these high-fat diets because we thought, you know, and what these studies showed. And the editors of the New York Times Magazine said, Atkins is the elephant in the living room. Like, get rid of this Harvard guy. Put him down below. Lead with Atkins, okay? I mean, they know how to get people to read an article. So I write this lead. I read it to my wife, and it's, you know, if the American Medical Association, the American Heart Association, have a find yourself standing naked nightmare in Times Square, excuse me, find yourself standing naked in Times Square nightmare, it's that all the advice they've been giving to the American people about a healthy diet for the last 50 years is wrong, and maybe Atkins was right all along, and maybe both. And I read it to my wife, and I say, they will never run this in a million years, and I email it to the editors, and they don't change a word. And that's the lead of the magazine article. And then they put this picture on the cover of the magazine, which is this kind of cheap-looking porterhouse steak. They didn't go to, you know, the photographer to make a delicious, you know, and it's got a pat of butter, and the headline is, what if it's all been a big, fat lie? And I didn't stop them from doing it. But I didn't know what to expect. I knew it was going to be controversial. Getting back to your question, I tend to answer long-winded. I knew it was going to be controversial. I knew it was going to be the most controversial article they'd run since a friend of mine 10 years earlier had written an article about how recycling is a complete waste of time and money. I had no idea what was going to happen. No idea. And I compare it to my boxing career, okay? When I was younger, I, when I was at Harvard, I, my best friend was a boxer. He was a street fighter from Manhattan, a Puerto Rican kid and a wonderful guy. I mean, everyone in school loved him. And then uh, he taught me how to box, and we used to you know, box in the, the gym, and I would do this sort of Muhammad Ali imitation because that's what I thought boxing was in 1977. Then he actually had an amateur fight in Low Mass in March 1977. He got killed in the oh, fight. Jesus. And, of course, me being young and stupid, um, it's not enough to prevent me from continuing. So when I moved to New York— Did you I, watch the fight? Yeah, we were there. You were there? We didn't know. What happened to him? Uh, he danced into a right hook and went over backwards like it was frozen, like it was a plank of wood. And his head bounced off the mat. That's how I remember it. I God knows if my memory is right. It's one and, of the scariest things is when the head bounces. Yeah. It's one of and, the worst ways to get knocked out. Yeah, and we knew it was bad, but we didn't know. It's not, he didn't die. He went into, he was in a coma. They took him to the hospital. We went all home, you know, we, and then you know, a week later, there's just no brain activity. And they, this is how I remember it. I hope I'm doing him justice by getting the memory right. Um, of course, nowadays, you can Google it and read about the article and 
the Boston yeah. Globe, and it was an article. Anyway, I moved to New York. I go to journalism school. I have a friend who is Norman Mailer's nephew. And Norman Mailer had a group of people who used to get together at the Gramercy Gym on Saturday mornings in New York. Um, this is another long-winded answer to oh, your question. Don't worry about is, that. I mean, talk about Shaggy Dog story. So every Saturday morning, we'd meet at the Gramercy Gym, which is 14th and around Lexington. When it was back then, it was a very seedy neighborhood, and it was, you know, uh, classic gym. Yeah, classic old gyms and boxing. And some really, like Ryan O'Neill's buddies with Norman would show up once every three months. And there was a guy who ran, I forget, it was a porn magazine that was sold in the brown paper bag. (laughs) (laughs) He would show up and then, you know, a half dozen other people. I had this uh, friend, Steve Chow, went on to uh, um, become uh, Barry Diller's right-hand man and yeah, Hollywood, who had actually been the valedictorian of our class at Harvard. And we would spar, and um, I enjoyed it, and I got into it, and I was getting the crap beat out of me first. But um, eventually, I, you know, I kept doing it, and then I decided to fight in the New York Golden Gloves and write about it for Playboy. So the piece was called um, uh, Life is a Standing Eight Count, how a Harvard... This, I'm sorry, but this yeah. is after your friend died. This is after my friend died. Wow. So anyway, the point is kind of like going from sparring to your first match. Now, you had a much more successful career than I did. I had two fights, and um, I won the first one because the Irish cop I was fighting got tired of punching me, and I finally thought if I hit him back, maybe that'll slow him down, and it worked. Um, But that transition from sparring to being in the ring and having someone want to beat the crap out of you is like you just can't. You cannot conceive of what it's going to be like until you do it, right? Right. I mean, if you can remember back to your first fight, and you might have been more of a natural animal than I am. I'm kind of a cerebral guy. I think too much. But that's what it was like getting this article published. Like, I knew it was going to be controversial. You want me to tell you the end of the boxing story? Sure. I won my first fight, you know, knocked out this cop from Staten Island and I was done. I didn't want to do it again. I didn't enjoy winning. I did not enjoy knocking him out. I didn't like anything about it. This nose was not built for getting pummeled (laughs) and I was not a very good defensive fighter. And then the second fight I went up against the guy who won it. You know, this was the, not the open category, the 10 fights or less category. And uh, he knocked me out in a minute and 37 seconds. I had a friend who, a photographer for life, who came. Norman Mailer was at the fight, too. Like, Norman's sitting there watching me get the crap beat out of me. And my friend, uh, who was a photographer, didn't have time to get her lens cap off, basically. She, you know, so they, I have a photo that ran in Playboy with the article, which was, you know, you could see ring level, and you see these two big feet sticking up and this body prone on the ring, you know. Did you get knocked unconscious? Yeah. When yeah. you woke up? Um, how terrified were you? were you? Were you thinking at all about your friend who died? No, that's the funny thing, not at all. But wow. I thought about it afterwards. So it's interesting. Apparently, you know, I woke up in the ring. I mean, I stood up. They raised the other guy's hand. I don't remember any of that. My Do you memory, remember the fight at all? A little bit. A little bit of, like, these roundhouses whizzing by my head. And I had this tendency. I would, like, pull my head back. Oh. So I'm pulling my hands down instead yeah. of terrible instinct but yeah, natural for yeah, some strange reason yeah yeah it's very and, difficult to t- teach people to not do the worst thing yeah and you know if my career had lasted past that fight my very good landed. coach would have broken Corrected it out it, and he would yeah. have said oh, don't ever do that again and right. you know anyway i 
my memory is I'm, I'm sitting outside the ring and a doctor is saying to me, do you know what your name is? Do you know what, you know? So there's a period in my life where I was clearly conscious, but I have no memory of it. Um, then they, they make you go to the hospital afterwards to make sure you're not going to die overnight. And I was in, in the emergency room and there was a guy next to me who had had a motorcycle accident and a cab had cut him off and he had the same, we were talking, he was about my age, Hispanic, and he, um, you know, this thing where there's, you know, the way you say the next thing I remember, right? and then there's this awareness that there could very, for, uh, it could very well have never been a next thing I remember, you know, the, the moment could have just ended there, and that's when I started thinking about my friend. But I was too busy getting mad at the hospital attendant who kept telling me that my nose was broken. And I kept saying, my nose isn't broken, asshole. This is the nose I was born with. Like, oh, man, that's a broken nose. I know a broken nose when I see one. But um, anyway, that's, that was a little bit. So I published this article. I've got no idea what's going to happen. And, you know, it was like just the universe. I mean, first of all, there's an enormous amount of media attention. So I'm doing TV shows and radio shows and people are writing about me. But people are attacking me because the implication is not just did the nutrition obesity community screw up, but my journalist friends who have been covering this field screwed up. That They got the wrong story. They missed the story that I found. And nobody wants to think like that. You don't want to think you're bad at what you do, right? Right. So, you know, friends are writing articles about me. You know, I, one you know, woman journalist in Boston who used to be a good friend who thought I was one of the five best uh, writers in the country, science journalists in the country, until I wrote a piece that came to a different conclusion than a book she had written on obesity. And the headline in Newsweek was, It's Not the Carbs, Stupid. You know, um, the Center for Science and the Public Interest did a piece called Big Fat Lies, cover of their newspaper, basically explaining how I had screwed up on everything I had screwed up. Another journalist who had written a book on obesity did a piece for Reason magazine about all the ways I had screwed up. And luckily, I hadn't screwed up in any of them, so I could get back at them and take them down. But when which, you d did get back at them and take them down, you're talking about a time where, I mean, w what year was this? This was 2002. So you had a blog? Did you, how no, did you get back at them? No, none of that. Them? Oh, well. Did you uh, publish a The Center response? for Science and the Public Interest piece, they wouldn't even let me respond. Reason Magazine was interesting. I called up the editors and I said, look, this is just complete bullshit. And you've got to let me respond. And they said, okay. They didn't care because they, they put it online. Right. So if Alves is going to write for him for free, let him write for him for free, you know, right. and the more controversy brings more readers. So I spent the weekend, I remember I wrote like a 9,000 word response and there's still some great stuff in there where, you know, even the very end of this thing, I was pointing out every way this guy had screwed up, like taken down my article by saying I made mistakes when he was the one making mistakes right. and the last line was something like he had called my editor who had now bought this book for a lot of money he had called my editor um, I think he used the last name he called him Richard Siegel or something so the last line of the book was in just the final word my editor's name is not Richard Siegel it's John period you know 9,000 word takedown and 
this guy ended up never writing for Reason Magazine again. Congratulations. Though, yeah. He got rid of an asshole. So, and, and it also just, it's the human ego is shocking and horrifying because that's the only reason why someone would look at what you wrote and step back and look at what they wrote and decide to attack. Instead of yeah. deciding to go, wow, this guy went deep with this research. I need to really look at this and I need to really find out whether or not I've been incorrect and I need to really reevaluate what kind of advice I've been giving to yeah. humans. Think about the hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of people that have read articles from these people that gave them poor advice and that advice adversely affected their health directly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But again, which But not, instead they cover their ass. We're not programmed to do that. They are we. That's we what you always gotta remembering. You know, dietary remember, mushrooms. Yeah. Remember of my well, this is a low dose yeah. acid thing. Sounds well, like I could really microdose. transform my personality. I could become a different person. I I have you tried it before? No, no. I'm a little scared that I'll become a I'm gonna try it now, is that's what's gonna happen? I have to. Uh, Let me know after the show. I have to. I have to be able to get to Burbank and catch. Oh, you can get to Burbank on acid. It's okay. the best way. Yeah, there we go. Thank you, you'll, Joe. You'll instinctively know where Jay Leno's garage is. Yeah, it'll be like a beacon. You'll, like <laughs> see it above. You know how like you have a three D map and it's got that little balloon where your location is. Yeah. Okay, we're there. Um, <laughs> you know, hey, I, I live in Oakland. We don't yeah. need it. We don't need help with uh, no, psychoactives up there. We're good. The um, anyway, what was I saying? So yeah, it's just it's a natural human tendency. The ego but you is, wish. Yeah. You wish somebody would say, Jesus, I never thought of this. That's was, all they need to say. They have to say, we never thought of this. This is an interesting take. Clearly, the editors at the New York Times Magazine are really smart people. Thought this was interesting. The fact checkers fact checked it. There's no mistakes. That's why at least I was safe there because they're really good fact checkers. It didn't rely on me. Why don't we... And it just doesn't happen. I mean, it was funny. Even afterwards, I start doing this book. And now I'm going to interview hundreds more people. And you would expect that a lot of the scientists aren't going to talk to me because they're going to be so mad at me about this article. But most of them actually were good. There was one scientist I wanted to talk to specifically because a guy I was talking to said he hated your article. thought it was total crap. So I sent him an email and I said, yeah, I'd like to interview you. Um, I hear you thought the article was total crap, and I'd like to know why, because if it was, I want to make sure I don't make those mistakes again. And he said, sure, as long as you make sure you check all my quotes, because I don't trust you to get my quotes right, because that was another story that was going around at the time. And two weeks later, we get on the phone, and he says, you know, i got to apologize. When I read your article, I was so pissed off by the title, what if it's all been a big fat lie and you're holier than thou, smarter than we are attitude, that I never actually thought deeply about what you were saying. And I pretty much agree with you. Wow. <laughs> now that I've read it again, and context is everything in these things. So, And I notice that when I lecture, so I give a lot of lectures, I talk the grand rounds in medical schools. If somebody introduces me to a room full of doctors as this is a, you know, very well-respected journalist. He's won all these awards, including these influential public health awards. He's written this incredibly thoughtful, provoking book. And we managed to get him here to give you the arguments. The doctors will be completely receptive to everything I say. I've also had people introduce me as, yeah, here's this guy, Taubes. He wrote this big book. He says everything we say is wrong, and he's going to give a lecture. 
And now it's like they're tuned out from day one. Right. From the moment I open my mouth, they're looking for reasons not to believe a word I Arms said. Arms crossed, pose, sitting yeah, back. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then they're looking at the phones five mm-hmm. minutes later and checking their email. It's sort of, so context is everything. And by making this article as controversial as it could with putting Atkins in the lead and the porterhouse steak on the cover and what if it's all been a big fat lie and i actually wasn't calling it a lie there's a lot of mistaken assumptions a lot of bad science but nobody lied did you create the title no but i didn't that's always what happens right i didn't reject it either so i get a great title but that's the thing so it got me a big book advance it made it exceedingly controversial but it turned a lot of people off because they were being accused of things they didn't want to think of themselves, especially the lie. Well, perhaps about. them, but initially. But over the course of time, it's got a lot of support behind it now by well, so many people. You've been recommended to me by at least a half a dozen people that I deeply yeah, respect. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. It's, it's an extraordinarily powerful intervention. What you experience, and you weren't even overweight. You know, this is... Yeah, that's so a good point, yeah. Two things that... You know, when I talk to my colleagues about this, I say it's like you're playing in a poker game with a thousand people in the establishment and they cheat because they all talk to each other and they share cards and they show each other what they get and they tell them what they're going to bet. But God keeps dealing you four aces. (laughs) You've got the best hand, you know, and the best hand is you shift your diet, you get rid of the carbs and you replace them with fat and it does remarkable things to most people, not all. Okay? But I, I want to talk to the people that it doesn't work on. I really do. Yeah. I want to know what they're actually doing. The problem with people when they, you know, it, it's so it's so subjective and it's also you don't exactly know how they're doing it, what, what, what their diet is like in terms of like how are they cutting out carbs, what kind of nutrients are they taking in, what's their, what's their rest like, how much well, sleep are they getting? That's the thing. I mean, I have a friend, uh, a diet book author, I think one of the smartest doctors out there. I'm always, whatever he says, it's always worth listening to. He believes that when people fail on the diet, it doesn't matter what age they are, what sex they are, when the diet doesn't return them to a relatively healthy weight. He believes it's because they're not conforming to the diet. Um, I disagree with him, actually. But again, he has He's actually more... any diet, period? No, the low-carb, high-fat okay. diet. So, you know, maybe they're eating too many nuts and there's carbs in nuts, or maybe they're lying to him about what they're doing, or right. they're still having the occasional sweet. And clearly there are people who try to compromise on these diets. So by compromise, I mean, you've been hearing so long that fat is bad for you. So you mm-hmm. get, I mean, sure, I'm going to restrict, you know, sugar and grain and starches, but I'm also going to restrict fat. Now you're eating skinless chicken breasts with green vegetables, and you're not even putting butter on it, and it tastes awful, and nobody's going to stick to that diet right. anyway. And in order to give the skinless chicken breast some flavor, you've got to marinate it in some sugar marinade. Right. So, and the protein, and the, you don't want to eat a high-protein diet because you're going to convert the protein to glucose, some of those amino acids, and that's going to raise blood sugar, and that could be a problem. So maybe they're just doing it wrong, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of hormones that influence fat accumulation. So this is, remember I said the Germans and Austrians had concluded, maybe I didn't say this, I can't even remember what I, you know, I've been doing this book tour. So I got it. Germans and Austrian research said, look, this has got to be a hormonal metabolic issue. The whole idea that it's just calories in, calories out is 
it's it's an explanation. It's like somebody gets heavier, they take in more calories than they expend. We know that. It's like somebody accumulates energy in their fat tissue, they're accumulating energy in their body, which means they're taking in energy more than they expend. That's just a description of what happens. It says nothing about why. You know, they're clearly hormones play a huge role in fat accumulation, or men and women would look identical. Okay, so boys go through puberty, they lose fat and gain muscle. Girls go through puberty, they gain fat in very specific places, like not everywhere, you know, places designed to drive the boys crazy and get some procreation going. And that's all hormonal. It's all estrogen in the girls, testosterone in the boys, you know, little mix going on. It doesn't matter how many calories they're consuming. So these Germans and Austrians would say it's, you know, it's clearly a hormonal thing. I mean, the only way you could explain obesity is is a hormonal dysregulation. And then in the 60s, we learned that insulin controls fat accumulation, dominant hormone. But these other hormones play a role as well. So stress hormones play a role and sex hormones play a role. So estrogen and testosterone both inhibit uh, an enzyme called lipoprotein lipase that when it's on your fat cells basically pulls fat out of the, the circulation and into the cell. That's a simplistic way to put it. So when you're pumping out estrogen and testosterone, you're inhibiting this enzyme which inhibits fat accumulation. Then you get older. You secrete less that these hormones, women go through uh, menopause, they secrete less estrogen, the lipoprotein lipase is upregulated on their fat cells, so you get more of it, so it just starts accumulating fat, no matter how much the woman wants to eat or exercise. And this is why they put on fat when they get older. I think women are programmed to put on fat when they're pregnant. Men are never really programmed to put on fat, but women have a fat accumulation program when they're pregnant, and it sort of kicks in a little bit as they go through menopause. And so I think historically, when you look at the anecdotal evidence, uh, you know, older women have a much harder time losing excess body fat, even on very calorie, carbohydrate-restricted, ketogenic diets, and it would be completely understandable. And the argument I make is that the um, this would still be the best diet, still be the leanest they could be, you know, for all intents and purposes by getting rid of carbs, but it does not mean that it's going to work or it's going to work as much as they want it to because of these other sex hormones and the influence on, you know, body fat as well. And perhaps the only way to adjust that would be extreme exercise, right? Like they'd have to go crazy CrossFit or start running up hills with weights on them or something. You know, and that's a question. I don't know. And that wouldn't adjust it. That would be sort of a temporary fix, you know, so you might be able to, A, stimulate some more, even testosterone production. I mean, uh, but... Temporary it, fix unless you continue that activity. Yeah, but the problem is if it may be virtually, you know, again, I here's my issue with... I, I, I don't know. There was a Harvard psychologist uh, in the 50s, 40s and 50s named William Sheldon who came up with this idea. I'm going to need some Googling here, by the way, um, of three different fundamental body types. So there's an ectomorph, a mesomorph, and uh, what was the third Endomorph. One? Endomorph. Which is the obese one? Endomorph. Endomorph. And he said, and which is the thin one? Ectomorph. Ecto. So he said you can no more, you could starve an ectomorph and you don't turn him into an 
you can starve an endomorph. You don't turn them into an ectomorph. You turn them into an emaciated endomorph. Mm. Okay? It's like you cannot, and it, it, I don't know if it was his metaphor or mine. I forget now. You you can't starve a basset hound and turn it into a greyhound. You just end up with a emaciated so are these basset hound. genetic factors determined by the environment where their ancestors developed? Uh, and the environment the in the mother's womb right. and the... You know, uh, and it's not necessarily, like I said, genetic. It's certainly biological factors. Who knows? Maybe the gut biome right. is involved. I doubt it. But, but there's it also be. the shapes of the bodies are radically different, well, too. Well, that's the thing. Like Sh I said, width my, of the shoulders for yeah. the mesomorphs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my brother was an ecto. I mean, he was, he was always tall and thin. And he got, you know, at 195, he was buff, but he wasn't. I could put on muscle much easier than him. I could put on fat. I had a friend who was a Taekwondo champion in the 80s, and he was six foot two, six foot maybe three, and he fought at 147 pounds. Jesus, yeah. And you couldn't I would even get anywhere near death. him. I'm like six two, and I would, I'd star, I'll, starve, I'll yeah. starve to death at 175. But it was in his hands. It was in the shape of his face. He was yeah. very narrow. Yeah. His feet, yeah, yeah. everything. It was just. And that's how his body, so mm -hmm. part of this alternative hypothesis, which I find so, you know, what we believe today is, you know, the conventional thinking is, um, how much you eat and exercise drives how much fat you accumulate. And the alternative hypothesis is that how much fat you accumulate is very well regulated by the human body, although you can change that regulation by changing the macronutrients. So people who fat tissue doesn't want to accumulate fat, who are constitutionally lean like your buddy, when they eat a meal, they can't store it as fat temporarily. They've got to burn all those calories. So the way they'd burn it in Prior to the 1950s, a clinician studying obesity used to talk about the impulse to physical activity. So you eat, you know, Lance uh, Armstrong eats 1,000 calories of pasta, and his body doesn't want to store it as fat. It wants to burn it. So he goes for a three-hour bike ride after lunch because his body's trying desperately to get rid of those calories, and it doesn't want to store them as fat. I have the 1,000 calories of pasta. My body's happy storing it as fat and I'm asleep an hour later. Right. But I'm not thicker and fatter than Armstrong because I'm asleep. I'm asleep because that's the way my body processes the carbs by right. starting. But calories. is that a case of nature or nurture? That's nature. Hundred percent. But it's but it's no, it's not because the nurture part is how the diet influences. So if I have exclusively fat and protein, if I'm eating a ketogenic diet, then I'm minimizing fat accumulation and my body wants to burn more of those calories. So I am closer to being a Lance Armstrong. So Lance Armstrong can be lean on his high-carb diet. I am closer to being Lance Armstrong-like, closest on a diet to absent all carbohydrates. But I'm still, you know, now I'm just a bigger individual. I mean, it's interesting. We were talking about, uh, uh, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who was the freshman manager of my college football team. So this was Harvard, okay? It was Division Two football. It was a lot of smart, you know, guys who couldn't make it in Division One. We had kids who went to Harvard because they didn't get scholarships at Holy Cross. So they went, okay, I'll play football for Harvard. They were local. <laughs> 1976, my senior year, the biggest kid on our team, Danny Jiggets, weighed 265 pounds, six foot five. From our standards, he was enormous. He went off to play for the Chicago Bears for five or six years. I think we had one other offensive lineman who was 265, also six four, six five, um, maybe two. 
this year, Harvard football team, smart kids, same socioeconomic status, the entire offensive, they got, I think, 12 players over 300 pounds. Jesus these, Christ. And these guys are enormous. I mean, they're six, seven, 300 pounds. They didn't grow people that big when I was growing up. I mean, I could say maybe I didn't see them. Maybe they weren't around. Maybe they were six, seven, and they only weighed 230 because they weren't being bulked up, so they were playing basketball instead of football. I mean, I could imagine ways that that confusing. But from our perception, if you look just what happened, when I was a kid in the early 1960s, I remember, as far as I know, there was one 300-pounder in the NFL and the AFL, two different leagues back then. Bob D. I remember his name. He played for the Boston Patriots, and his head was like small compared to his body, and he was a big fat guy. You know, what is there now? 20, 30 per team? I well, mean, here's a good example. Big George Foreman from 1970, yeah. whatever it was, when he fought Joe Frazier. He only right. weighed 217 pounds. Is that? Yeah. George only weighed 270. Yeah, I mean, when he came back, yeah, he, he got was really like 240, fat. Yeah. When he came back, when he took a long time off, he, he ate himself to be well over 300 well, that's pounds, he was but he was extremely all, obese. Draining all the fat from the, in the, the George Foreman grill. Uh, you know, it's making low fat, even, high protein. That was even after that. Yeah. But back in those days when he was a terror yeah. before he fought Muhammad Ali, he was relatively small by today's standards. Yeah. I mean, if you look at... Uh, UFC heavyweight champion Stipe Miocic, I believe Stipe walks around at about 240 pounds, yeah. and he's small compared to Brock Lesnar, who's 285 pounds. Like here's a good example. Oh, Jamie just pulled up yeah. from 1927. Uh, God, blow your nose, man! You're freaking me out. Don't be scared. <laughs> You're the only one who can hear it. Uh, everybody can hear can it. Hear Trust it. Oh, me, Jesus. they can hear it. Um, and then 190 pounds, Morris Red Bad Badgro. How do you say that name? B A D G R O. Badgro. Badgro. Bad he's growing bad. That's why he's only 190. Yeah, exactly. He's six foot tall, 190. And this is 1927. He played offense and defense for the New York Giants. So that guy's 10 pounds lighter than me, and I'm 5'8. Yeah. He's six foot tall, and he's a pro football player, which right. is fucking terrifying to me. And then you go to 1967, and you got Alan Page. He's six foot four, 245 pounds, a relative giant in comparison. Then you go to 2006, and you have, boy, say that name, Halodi Nagata. Halodi yeah. Nada. Nada. Nada? Yeah. You say Nada? Nada? I think it's Nick. You don't pronounce the G? You don't pronounce Okay. The G is silent. Haloti Nada. Okay, and he is six foot four, three hundred thirty-five pounds. He's got a big old gut on him. He could lose some weight. Look at his, uh, look at his 40 time now. Under well, five seconds. Wow. That's insane. So he's a giant. I mean, people are just Can much you pull larger. up the starting left tackle for the Dallas Cowboys right now? I forget his name. Just Google left tackle Dallas Cowboys. Well, even uh, heavyweight boxers today. Tyrone just... Smith. That's it. Okay. Get, a, get, a, get a picture of Tyrone. 312, 6'5". Get, get, get a picture of him. Whoa. That's a big fella. Okay. Get, get the one with the without, shirt off. Yeah, without the shirt off. Let's go pornographic. Okay, so they're not... I mean, people didn't exist like that right. when I was growing up. Yeah. There's I mean, this new heavyweight that's uh, fighting for the UFC. His name is Francis Ngannou. And uh, he's one of the most exciting prospects in the UFC right now. He's a heavyweight, he's undefeated, and he is fucking enormous. And uh, he's probably, shit. yeah, go to that picture right there, the far left, far left, Jamie, upper left, yeah. He's, I mean, that is a giant man. Ridiculous, brutal knockout artist, too. And um, 
go to go see if there's a Wikipedia on his size. But I'm pretty sure he's super lean at around 245, something like that. What does it say there? It says six foot four. It doesn't say his weight right there. Does it say his weight anywhere there? 257. 257. Jesus. Yeah, so, okay, so he's 40. He's 40 pounds heavier. That than might big may or Foreman. may yeah may or may not be correct yeah. as far as the weight, but it's close. And and I I wouldn't be shocked. He's one of those guys where he walks into the octagon, and you know I when I do commentary, I sit at a desk that's touching the octagon. So I'm sitting yeah. here. There's a desk. My notes are on it. He's in front of me. When he walks in the octagon, I can feel his footsteps on my hands. <laughs> He's like he's made out of stone. Yeah. And then when he hits people, just Jesus Christ, you see the look on their face when he hits them. See if you can find like a, like just a quick highlight reel of this yeah. guy. He's, now, what's interesting is some of that, I mean, training has changed dramatically. Like even oh, when sure. George, I mean, you know, boxers didn't lift. They didn't do resistance training. They didn't do any of the back, back mm -hmm. then because he didn't want to uh, slow them down. Yeah, that's what they, they thought back then. The, uh, yeah, look at this. Boom. Yeah. He's a giant dude. French, too. Yes, French, but I believe originally from Nigeria, yeah. I believe. And um, really, look at that. Boom. Big, powerful guy. Terrifying guy. So here's the thing. One of my pet theories I don't talk about. This is why I let my kids have sugar, by the way. Um, ouch. The, uh, okay, so what, one of the things that happens when you increase insulin. So sugar, the idea is sugar causes insulin resistance that results in chronic increases in insulin levels. So insulin stimulates fat accumulation, but it also stimulates uh, secretion of uh, it's called insulin-like growth hormone, which is yeah. similar to growth hormone. So the reason we grow is not because growth hormone drives tissues and skeletal muscle to grow, but it drives insulin-like growth factor, which then works on a local level. So if you got more insulin in your system, you're going to have more insulin-like growth factor, and it's going to be more bioavailable. Um, there's these proteins called binding proteins that float around the bloodstream, and they'll bind to IGF, insulin-like growth factor, and make it so it can't get into cells or can't bind to the receptors. So you would expect as populations, as populations become more ins insulin-resistant, you would expect them to grow to be taller as well as thicker and fatter and more diabetic. And one of the mm. classic observations as populations become westernized, they get taller. And this, you know, you look at medical records or army records from, you know, the Civil War and everybody, well, the men were like five foot six. And, um, you know, now clearly the average height has gone up and it's kind of leveled off a bit in the United States, but there's still countries in Europe where it's gotten higher. And one of the things that freaks me out is when I go to Europe nowadays, and you're walking around a lot of Scandinavians, and I feel petite. Oh, you know, in Holland. Yeah. The average man in Holland is over six foot tall. Yeah, when I was growing huge. up, I was definitively tall, and mm -hmm. now I haven't shrunk, I don't think. I might <laughs> be getting there. And now it's just like everyone seems six four, six five. So the conventional thinking is they get more calories, they get more protein, you need the protein for the, the growth and the calories, and that's kind of the explanation. But it could be that they get more sugar and mm. that that drives vertical growth as well as horizontal growth. And Well, that makes sense because don't uh, bodybuilders, like in extreme situations, don't they take insulin in order to uh, gain yeah, muscle? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll drive muscle development as well. I mean, again, it works as a growth hormone. An IGF is a growth hormone. So could there be an argument for bodybuilders to consume a diet that's high in sugar? In order to, to spike up that insulin to... You know, now you're getting out of my area of expertise again. But it's mm. funny, when Arnold came over in the 60s, 
the one of the advantages he had, other than you know massive amounts of <clears throat> steroid consumption, was um, that his I forget who his mentor was back then, but they put him on a very low carb diet because that definitely cuts the fat. So there, again, this is far out of my area of expertise. But you get a bodybuilder, right. and they'll tell you how they you know um, uh, you know oscillate between high carbs for development, high fat to cut the fat and get down to. I had this debate. Do you know Alan Aragon? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know who that guy yeah, is. So yeah. So Alan, uh, we had a debate. Yeah. He's uh, like he's very skeptical. Oh, just... it's a kind way to put it. And I think he's. It's a bit of a. I don't get it. I always wanted to ask him, like Alan, what you know, you know, that this isn't. You know, I'm arguing that that that. Well, well, well define his position because he he his doesn't position, think there's any issue with sugar. It's all about calories. Right. It's just all about calories, and you get people to exercise enough, you'll turn an obese person lean. And you know, if that I mean, the implication. Well, that can happen, but you know, who the fuck is going to do it the way you would have to do it? You would essentially have to starve your body. Well, but this is the point. It's like I could. It can you know, be I done could, that way. I know, but it doesn't say any reason. It doesn't say anything about why they got fat to begin right, with. Right, it I doesn't can, say anything about the damaging effects of sugar. Yeah, and I could inhibit your kid's growth mm-hmm. by starving them. Right. You know, and they're going to be stunted. But that doesn't mean they're growing because they get to eat as much as they want. They're growing because their brains are secreting growth hormones, right. stimulating IGF, and that makes them hungry. So what is he you denying know? about the... Uh, I don't know. We were in a debate in England that uh, it was about... Uh, I don't quite understand what he was denying. That was the interesting thing. He basically was denying that it was about that obesity was a hormonal metabolic disorder. He had to deny that a journalist knows something that he doesn't and that the advice he's been giving and that what he's been voicing over the years is right. And what but, is his uh, medical background? Uh, he's got no medical background. He's a physical trainer. Maybe he's an exercise physiologist. He's no more doctor or nutritionist than I am. The, um, the point is I was looking for ways to debate him, so I found a clip uh, on the internet, one of his lectures where he was talking about how there was one particular athlete he was training, a bodybuilder, he had to get, you know, maximum cut for the competition, so he cut his carbs down. And if he cut the carbs preferentially, you do that because you're going to reduce insulin and you're going to mobilize maximum amount of fat and you're going to get the most possible fat out of the fat tissue by doing it. It clearly meant he believes what I believe. But some huh. people just, you know, you got to establish that. Well, how did he respond to that? He laughed. Everybody laughed. He got kind of embarrassed. But it was a, you know, it was an interesting debate. It was a, a fitness expo in, I forget what, you know, red brick town in England, you know, one of these. Um, the reason why I keep bringing him up is because I've been, uh, I've been, uh, uh, contacted by fans of his, yeah. I've been in communication with him at one point in time, and you know, it's, I didn't realize how strongly against this proposition he is, or this. Yeah. Well, you should. Is. You should get him to do the show. I mean, he's a you, very chatty, talkative guy, and he'll explain mm-hmm. it to you, and then you could argue, and we could argue. But what does um, what does he say about the impact of sugar? Like, does he deny all these things that you're talking well, about in if, terms again, of diabetes? And we did not say this in the debate. I would, I would hate to, you know, uh, get Alan's position wrong. But if he's implying that obesity is an energy balance problem, it's calories in, calories out. I, that seemed to be the argument he was defending vociferously when we debated. That in turn means that the only way that foods can influence your body weight is through their 
uh, caloric content, and that means sugar is, you know, an empty calorie, the worst you could say about it. But that's clearly not true if sugar actually does affect your hormonal state, and yeah. that affects the way your body processes fat yeah, so he, and insulin. If he were to believe that, then he would have been conceding that I won the debate, so I'm going to say, which he clearly you know, doesn't think I did. And, um, you know, frankly, I didn't because the crowd was 100% with him when we started and it was like 95% with him when we left. <laughs> but well, that's still pretty good. It, that's what I would argue. But, uh, and I learned my lesson that you can't win a debate when you're going in and everyone sides with your... Now, why did they all side with him? Because uh, they love sugar? <laughs> now, what was on, remember, it wasn't about sugar. It was right. about the cause of obesity. Right. We were actually debating different things. It was kind of, it was a weird situation. I think I may have blocked it out of my head, but we were debating, uh, you know, again, my argument, obesity, I'm, what I thought of, we were supposed to be debating was whether or not obesity is caused by consuming too many calories or the macronutrient contents influencing this sort of hormonal metabolic regulation of fat accumulation. Um, what we ended up debating was whether or not the people in the audience would rather be trained by Alan Aragon, the physical trainer or exercise physiologist, or Gary Taubes, the journalist. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. It is kind of ridiculous, and it was a bizarre experience, and, you know, it was a it was it was an interesting trip, and you learn your lesson. Too. I've had those conversations same. with people before, and the, the problem with those conversations is it's you're you're taking a very simplistic approach to a very complex scenario. You know, if you did work out more, and if you did do all these different things, you're going to affect your body and your hormone levels. If you start doing deep squats with heavy yeah. weights, you start doing deadlifts, and you start, you know, uh, putting a weight vest on and hiking up hills, you're going to massively affect the way your body produces hormones. Yeah. Your, your body's going to yeah. ramp up. It's going to deal with these new demands. It's going to change gonna the change. way you partition fuels. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, yeah. things are going to happen. See, it's not as simple as a lot of people like to point it out. And the people, see, they seem to want to do it as a math problem you know calories in well, calories out i just had i gave i was in uh altadena on sunday talking at a skeptic society meeting I why think do they all go to altadena is it michael shermer michael shermer everybody's in fucking altadena yeah yeah um and it was uh, during the torrential rainstorm so it was touch and go getting there because the roads were flooded but um there's one guy sitting in the audience in the front row um it was a calorie restrictor you know, one of these guys who eats like eight, he lives on 1800 calories a day because he thinks he's going to live longer. Ask him if he wants to spar. <laughs> yeah. Guy'll <laughs> get tired in about 20 seconds. Yeah. I know. <gasps> I, yeah there's not a lot of, well, the other thing with those guys is not a lot of muscle tone, yeah. right? Because they don't have enough calories. They're dead to men walking. The anyway. I'm going to live forever as you a know. skeleton. Yeah, this is. <laughs> It's, I did give a talk to uh, the Calorie Restriction Society. I'm digressing again. This is in Novato, North of San Francisco. And I got one of the guys in the email afterwards said, and I was explaining that I thought all the benefits of calorie restriction come from carbohydrate restriction because there's a lot of evidence suggesting that what makes it, if it is beneficial, it's because you know, these guys minimum, minimize insulin and IGF secretion. And... Um, you can minimize insulin and IGF by just not eating the carbs, and then you get to fuel the rest of your body, so you get the calories you need to get the protein you need to get the fat you need. You just don't eat the thing that stimulates insulin and IGF. 
And after the lecture, I got an email from a guy in the audience who was part of this society who said, you know, I'm going to experiment. I should get back with him to see what happens. It was like four years ago. He said, you look so much healthier than all of us. And your argument was compelling. <laughs> and I'm going to experiment to see if maybe there's something to what you say. And I'm going to shift over from eating, you know, 1,800 calories of like 50% carbs to 1,800 or maybe 2,500 or who knows how many of protein and fat. Well, I had Dr. Rhonda Patrick on the other day, and she uh, was discussing some pretty compelling evidence about the amount of time that you eat during a day and intermittent fasting and the importance of only eating within a 10-hour period from the morning you wake up to the time you stop eating, no more than 10 hours, and then the rest of your day, the remaining 14 hours, no food. Well, and it's interesting because even... um but she was talking about the massive benefits of that in, in terms of de- gaining and lean muscle mass just from doing that, losing body fat just from doing that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of everything. I try to be as skeptical of my ideas as others, although people say I fail. Um, but I'm, I, I haven't read those studies closely. Well, I'll get them to you. I'll get yeah. them to you after we get out of here. I, I'll send them to you and send you the, the actual podcast itself. I think you'll find it pretty fascinating. Yeah, and... You know, the issue is I don't doubt it works. I know people who had trouble losing, you know, significant weight on low-carb diets and then switched to intermittent fasting and broke through, um, uh, you know, their plateaus. There's some people I know in the field who I like who think that you might get excessive stress hormone stimulation from the fasting so that the long-term effects may not be as beneficial as a ketogenic diet where you're not... Is there evidence of that? Increased uh, they stress think hormones so. mean cortisol? Uh, that that would be, yeah, my understanding. I haven't okay. paid a lot of attention but to it. But is this again. based on people with a carbohydrate-rich diet or people who like are on a fat-rich diet? Let's Google um, Steve Finney, P-H-I-N-N-E-Y, and fasting. I love this, by the way. It's like having... Pretty awesome, right? I don't need a memory. Probably All those concussions, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. It's How many like, concussions do you have, buddy? I think between football and... Uh, as soon so as you say between football, I start foot, thinking Between about football and boxing, I'd say five or six. That's you it? Know? You got off light. I did get off light. But Stephen J. Finney on making a low-carb yeah. diet sustainable. But we want to do Steve Finney uh, intermittent... Try intermittent fasting... Um, uh, let's see if we pull up low carb preserves. Well, that's obvious. Uh, cutting edge fat burning. This doesn't make stalls. for very good podcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're done. There you go. Well, the truth between hold on. That's not the truth Steve, between the way. world's most cutting edge fat burning performance meal plan, the keto diet. Okay. Yeah. Well, fo- anyway, folks so- can get into that. We, you don't have much time left because you're going to have to bail soon to catch your flight. Um, um, so I don't want to make you miss your flight. But this is um, you know, another thing that people can look into once they're yeah. uh, done listening to So anyway, to this. the interesting thing, even the intermittent fasting, the interesting thing is there's two ways to think of it. One is, well, okay, you're eating less fewer calories, and that's why it works, right? And the other is you're maximizing the amount of time during the day when insulin and IGF are low. And okay, so you but maximize- not necessarily when you're saying eating fewer calories, because that's not necessarily what they're talking about. Exactly. What they're talking about is taking time, allowing your body to process all those nutrients, yeah. Yeah. and not using the resources that could be developing muscle right. and, and building your body up. So that would account for the increase in lean muscle mass simply by following this intermittent fasting program. Right. Although it's interesting. I don't know if you had this experience when you went uh, on the ketogenic diet. So when I went... 
Because you often read people say, well, you lose. I was looking at a study today that was done, a one-week study done like 1967, where they lost more protein on the ketogenic diet than a calorie-restricted diet. They were all calorie-restricted. But when I went on this diet, it was interesting. My waist size went down and my jacket size went up. Mm. And I'm probably, my upper body, I mean, my lower body doesn't work because of no cartilage in the knees and you know, all the other wonderful things football left me with. But, um, you know, I just, I'm stronger now than I was when I was in college. I was working out three hours a day. I mean, it's and how old are you now? 60. You look great. Thank you. You're um, welcome. You, you look good too, Joe. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so what's the point? The point is, you know, by changing the time at which you're eating, and I, I believe you could probably eat just many calories, maybe you could eat more calories by doing it. It's not a calorie thing. It's a how does your body respond to having more time at low insulin levels, right. basically, and low more time at low IGF levels. And I could imagine, even in the low-carb diets, when the people were prescribing them 50 years ago, 60 years ago, they used to prescribe a walk before breakfast, mm. and which is interesting because that's the time when your insulin levels are lowest. So that's the time when you're really mobilizing the most fat from your fat tissue. Um, so in that sense, skipping breakfast, prolonging the amount of time before your first meal in the day would actually maximize this time when you're mobilizing fat. Well, I don't a lot know. of people prefer fasting cardio. They, they, they enjoy that, waking up in the morning and having hard cardio or some sort of a hard workout first thing in the morning. Well, and it's interesting because that's a, the point of the day when they're most likely to be burning fat rather than glucose. If they're not drinking a juice or a soda beforehand, mm -hmm. I could never do it. I always wanted to be able to do cardio first well, thing. Well, you certainly could. You just don't want to. No, I end up, I'm just enervated the whole day. It's like I'm dragging my ass all over. I cannot wake up afterwards. It's just my really? body doesn't do it. But it's even, I got, you know, I got two kids. I got like eight, two boys, 11 and eight. And I, I feed them breakfast in the morning and I, I cook them dinner maybe three times a week. My wife's kind of a vegetarian, so I got to cook the meat if I want them to eat animals. Um, they have, their body clocks are entirely different. They have very different body types. My youngest is not hungry in the morning. And my oldest is. And my youngest at night, like if you put pasta in front of him, he would just keep eating it and eating it and eating it until you finally just say, no more, you're going to blow up. Um, my oldest in the evening doesn't care. He's not interested. You know, he'll eat a little bit. He could skip dinner even. Like entirely different, not just body types, but timing of their hunger, which has got to be related to insulin secretion, other hormones, you know, biorhythms. So... It's uh, everyone's different in that. Yeah, way. biodiversity is a very important consideration when you're talking about any kind of diet, whether yeah. it's a vegan diet, a vegetarian diet, ketogenic diet. Everybody's body responds differently to different right. things. But what I'm saying about getting back to the case against sugar is we got obese and diabetic because of the sugar and right. the processed grains. The people who became obese and diabetic did so because of the sugar and the processed grains. In that sense, their bodies all responded the same regardless of what their, you know, genotype was. Right. And now when you want to get them back from the edge, that's where individual variation plays a role. I mean, that's guy McDougall who pushes the starch diet. He's got people on his website who swear that they lost 100 pounds eating only potatoes. Don't you think, though, that a lot of people, when you start concentrating 
on losing weight and concentrating on being healthy and concentrating yeah. on your diet. You make a concerted effort sort of across the board. So if you just go, I'm only going to eat sweet potatoes and, you know, and, you know, I'm going to yeah. go on. Like just the very act of considering your diet and b being conscientious has an effect. Well, it has an effect in many ways. One of them is you do consistent things that you, there are consistent things that you don't do. So like McDougal puts people on a starch diet and, and Atkins puts them on a ketogenic diet and Ornish puts them on a 10% fat, mostly vegetarian diet and Esseltine is, you know, a low-carb diet. And none of them, all of them say don't eat sugar, don't drink sodas, don't drink fruit juices, don't eat white bread. And they all do it for the same reason because it's going to stimulate insulin, you know. So and then when they benefit... You don't know if they benefited because they didn't eat meat or they didn't eat, you know, gluten or they didn't eat sugar and white bread and, you know. So the question then would become, and even if the ones who benefited, like on the McDougal diet, the thing that makes me suspicious is the people always say, I tried Atkins and it didn't work for me. And is that, did they really try it? Did, mm. they, did they try it, lost 60 pounds and then went back to eating? carbs and gained it back and said the diet failed? Did they just find it too hard to live without their pastries? But once they, McDougal came along and put them on a potato diet, or did he just tell them to say that because he wants to point out that this works for people that low carb doesn't? You just never know. I mean, right. it's a crazy, crazy world. Yeah, it's very hard to tell when you're dealing with anecdotal evidence, right? Yeah. It's very, very hard to tell when you're dealing with personal experiences about what someone says they did versus what they actually did? Yeah, well, that's what nobody knows. And one of yeah. the great flaws, I mean, there's tons of, we could talk about the flaws in nutrition research for, you know, another three hours. That'll I'll, be our next podcast. No, it's interesting because I'm doing this talk with you. I've never done a, like, two, three-hour podcast before, and you're, like, still laser-focused. And I could imagine, I think I would want to get in the ring with you. I could see it happening, that exact thing that we discussed earlier about the, you know, you're needing that, like, five minutes of energy to overwhelm your opponent and I could see it happening here and I'm thinking okay if I didn't have a cold and I could breathe through my nose I could take Joe we could go for seven hours I could wear him out <laughs> and if it gets uh -oh. bad we'll take out the drugs and the tequila and we'll see you know <laughs> although he's probably got you know I, I gotta get back in shape there but anyway it's interesting so get back in drug shape <laughs> yeah hey, it's been a long time you know well I got a <clears throat> certain you know establishment veneer that I gotta that, present to the world. I understand. I'm, I'm responsible. I got to get people who wear jackets and ties and, you know, button down shirts from Brooks Brothers to take me seriously. Believe me, as weird as it sounds, a lot of those fuckers are listening right now. That's good. And have That's been good. for a while. This is yeah. a, a really important subject. And let's just wrap this up here because I, I'm, I just want to thank you very much for writing that book and, and taking the time to put in that research uh, against you know, probably a lot of people's advice and, you know, and just my wife. Well, her, she, it worked out. <laughs> and my in-laws. Uh, overall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, you've made a substantial impact. And like I said, at least a half a dozen people that I deeply respect have recommended your work. And I'm really glad we got a chance to sit down and talk about this. And I think a lot of people are going to benefit from this podcast. And this is one thing that's just sort of piling on top of a, a, a massive amount of data that's now yeah. available to people that lets them make better better food choices. Well, that's the one thing I was going to say is what's really been the, the Trump can't use that word. Whoops. The, whoops. Jesus. <laughs> he fucked up Trump card. Yes. He's out. What's really pushed, uh, you know, what allows us to win, okay, which we couldn't win 50 years ago is the internet.
Yes. And that, and people can try these diets. Remember I said, you know, we're dealt four aces. The fact is you go on these diets, it helps people, and it helps yeah. them a lot. Not everyone. And we got distracted, and some people, I don't know, maybe some people just have bad reactions to cutting out all the carbs. But for most people, some significant proportion, they give up the carbs, they're healthier. And then they can talk about it on the Internet, and they could share with people, and they don't have to live in the same town or go to the same school. And so the word gets out, and then other people want to be helped. And, they, you know, even with physicians, it's like I got these doctors saying, you, you made medicine fun for me again because yeah. I can help people. And that too get spread around the internet and they you know you create clusters and facebook groups and it just you create momentum and you break out of the gatekeepers yes. it's no longer and it you know it's no longer just did i or did i not get into the medical journal was i influenced enough to write this review it's like wait a minute you said this but that, look at what happened to my neighbor right i want that to happen to me right and so you get this kind of revolution it's slow and it's takes time and it you know there's a lot of resistance and the vegetarian community they they resist it because the implication is that a lot of people will be healthier if they eat animals it's michael pollens you know eat food uh, not too much mostly plants and for the uh, obese diabetic individuals in the country which represent virtually 50 percent of americans Maybe mostly animals. Well, I, I'm hoping, though, that with the, the, I mean, there's been some really significant breakthroughs over the last few years with factory-produced meat that does yeah. not involve any animals dying. They, I mean, they can take yeah. initial meat from a dead animal right. and reproduce it in factories. And I think we're probably just a couple of years away from mass production of something like that. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that worry me is oh, they're going to make low-fat meat, right? Because I don't know. You know. I mean, maybe with, with what's going on right now and yeah. the, the understanding that people have today versus what they had only five Five or six years ago, I mean, I, I don't. I think there's probably going to be a market for high fat meat. Yeah, I hope so. Well, I'm going to wait for you to try it and tell I'm not me. Not shit. <laughs> I, uh, I yeah. have the benefit of being a hunter, so yeah. I, I kill my own meat, and it's okay. as healthy as it gets. Yeah, but no. I, I, I sympathize. I, I, I completely understand where the vegetarians and the vegans come yeah, from. Yeah, I get it. I, I, and I admire them. More, I, more I, the I wish I could. I, wish. I really feel like anybody could eat like naturally sourced eggs yeah. like i have chickens and they don't they don't get harmed by me eating their eggs at all yeah they live a natural life and everything's fine there's no cruelty involved whatsoever and those eggs are extremely healthy and beneficial well that's some of the best uh emails i ever got were from vegetarians who said you know i read your stuff i didn't want to like it i thought i'm intellectually open i'll read a couple of chapters decide it's full of shit and then i'll be able to sh close it and much to my dismay i found your argument compelling and some of them start eating start eating meat again some of them just add eggs back to their diet eggs and get great. rid of the sugar yeah. and the crap and find that they're healthier and yeah. happier and they feel better and that's that to me when you you know convince when you see somebody say you know hey i i, I get it Mm -hmm. I do see your point. I was. I can change. Well, I feel like for people, eggs are the best compromise because you you can easily digest them. It's, yeah. it's very few issues whatsoever with that. And again, if you have a yard, you could have your own chickens. Well, that's not only that. You can make the, it's they're like quick. I mean, yes. you could scramble four eggs in the morning in almost Absolutely. as much time as it takes to pour cereal into a bowl and get Absolutely. the milk out of the refrigerator. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not like I don't have time to eat. Right. 
Um, they don't take a lot of work to be good. Some people, I mean, my oldest son, I can't get him to eat an egg unless it's got matzo mixed in and maple syrup poured on uh. it. <laughs> but other, I don't know what it is. Again, it's one of these things that's like it's poison to them. But. Well, listen, Gary, thank yeah. you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. And I urge anyone listening to this to check out Gary's book, The Case Against Sugar, and anything else? Uh, no, that's it. Thank you, Joe. This thank you. Great. Really, really appreciate it. It's cool. All right, folks, we'll be back tomorrow with Shane Smith from Vice. Holla. Holla.